Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the ChrisCast. It's been a little while since the last episode, but I'm super excited to share this one with you because my guest is an over 20-year rhythm game veteran starting all the way back in 1999. He's a husband and father, a finalist in DDR for the 6th Konami Arcade Championship, earning the wildcard slot that year in 2017. He is just four songs away from the singles level 18 gold lamp, which is truly insane. And last but not least, he's an enthusiastic shit talker, as some of the original Florida competitors are known for. (laughs) I'm really glad I got to sit down and talk with him about his competitive origins, unpopular opinions, some salty stories, and receive genuinely great advice for competition and getting the most out of yourself as a player. You may know him as Kaze573. Everyone, please give it up for Hudson Felker. We're live. What's up, Hudson? How's it going, man? We're pretty good. No complaints. Well, no public, no public complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, uh, why don't you tell the listeners what you're doing right now? Uh, I am driving, because um, driving on the phone is the safest thing you can do, but I'm hands-free. I mean, not hands-free on the wheel, that'd be bad, but uh, hands-free on the phone. <laughs> Unless you have autopilot. Feel feel free to laugh at my jokes, because nobody ever does, so, you know, it would make this thing go a lot smoother. <laughs> no, I, I've had some pretty bad jokes as well. No, I'll be sure to top that. <laughs> I mean, you are a dad after all, so the dad jokes come naturally. I'm also eating right now, so uh, listeners, um, beware. Beware of the multitasking. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. A lot of us know who you are now as one of the elite few top players in the game, um, not just with DDR, but with Pump It Up, with Pop and Music. It seems to be with every rhythm game that you touch. Um, but how did this all start for you? It all started... A long, long time ago, I want to say, because I don't have an exact date, but uh, I want to say it was 1999, which is about a year after the game came out. Uh, I have relatives up in New Jersey, and every summer we'd go up to visit them. And, um, you know, one year we went up to go visit them, and uh, we went to the Ocean City Boardwalk, which, if you've ever been there, is, uh, you know, always always really busy. And there was a hundred people, probably hundreds of people, standing outside this one you know establishment on the outside of the boardwalk it was an arcade and so we tried to see what was going on and all of them were standing around watching dance dance revolution right and uh i used to be subscribed to uh like electronic gaming monthly extreme gamer uh playstation official magazine and all that stuff psm and i don't remember which one it was but i want to say it was extreme gamer but um one of them had like a segment on import games and I DDR was in there as like this weird Japanese game. And so when I saw it in the arcade, I was like, oh, this is that game from Japan they were talking about. And um, the guys finished their song. I walk up to the machine. My, my parents were like, you should play, you know. So I walk up to the machine and I go to put my money in. And these guys are like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Get at the back of the line. I said, oh, where's the line? And there were tokens lined up, like three rows of them on the machine. You know, they're like, you got to put your token up. And I looked at that. I was like, there's no way. 
So I said, yeah, there's a really big long line I can't play. So we kind of wandered around the arcade and there was actually another dance game machine in the back of the arcade and there was not a single person on the machine. And I said, oh, nobody's playing this one. I'll just play this. And that was a pump it up machine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a pump it up. I want to say it was a first mix. Uh, all I know is I never saw that mix again in my life, but I distinctly remember it being 100% in Korean. Like the interface was not user friendly. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, I failed whatever song I played and, uh, and I was like, all right. So technically that was my first foray into the dance game world was, was on a pump it up machine. That's hilarious. You're definitely not alone in that experience with seeing the pump it up machine neglected in favor of <laughs> DDR. And, yeah. you know, it makes sense too, with the DDR machine being in front of an audience. And I remember one time. I was in Ocean City, Maryland. It wasn't New Jersey, where it was the same thing. I was almost there with a group of friends, and um, this was—I guess this was not too long after I started playing. I was about fourteen or fifteen, and then there was a in the groove to upgrade that was at an arcade called Sportland, which was the place to go in Ocean City, Maryland for dance games. And the machine wasn't that good, but it was right there right in front of the boardwalk and the crowds were immense and you didn't really have to play anything like super high level you know to get their attention but it was it was a lot of fun you know to have that audience behind you makes a lot of sense that those people ended up just lining up for that game where they could be seen and the game in the back they just didn't care about because nobody else would care right two things one there used to be a huge arcade in um Ikebukuro in Japan called uh, Sport or Sportland, and that arcade was amazing. So it's it's interesting that you said you went to a place called Sportland, because uh, I also used to go to a place called Sportland, but not the one that you went to. Moving forward, um, we used to go to the electronics boutique at the mall near you know where I lived. Which, by the way, if you look on the uh, on the Round One website, they're building a Round One at that mall in the next couple of years. So that's really cool. Yeah, I, went, I used to go to the electronics boutique all the time there, and I knew the guys there, and uh, there was this guy there with an imported Dreamcast. So that's how you know this was the year 1999. And um, it had like a clear neon green case, and it was modded, and he could play Japanese games. And I was like, dude, where did you get that? It was like I ordered my parts from Lick Sang. I don't know if you've ever been to LickSang.com. That was like an old school... PlayStation, Dreamcast, modding website. Totally gone by now, I believe. But uh, back then, nobody ordered stuff from the internet. So that guy was crazy. Um, but I, I was talking with the guys, and I was telling them about this game I played when I was in New Jersey. And they said, oh, we got one of those here as well. I said, really? They said, yeah, Tampa Lanes. It's a bowling alley. Uh, they have all the latest and greatest games. So, you know, I convinced my parents to take me uh, to Tampa Lanes. And they had two DDR machines. Um, and kind of like, I think this was actually uh, in 2000 at this point. It was, you know, later on. And um, that's when I started going all the time and playing from there. And you grew up in Florida for most of your early life, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I lived in Tampa until uh, until college where I moved to Orlando, lived in Japan, uh, moved to Tallahassee, Seattle, Chicago. I've been all over. But, yeah, up until college, Tampa. 
is this was really early then, like 1999, 2000. I've heard some people who have already done episodes that talked about starting in 2001, 2002, and it's really not that many years behind, but... It makes a world of difference, to be honest. Back then, it's like being a one-year-old versus being a two-year-old. You know, in the early development ages, is a huge difference between somebody who went from 32 to 33, you know? No, that's true, and they were coming out with content all the time. It was like six-month release schedules. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because back then it did not feel like it was all the time. You know, when you heard a new version was coming out, it was just as exciting as it is now. It's just that back then, I mean, also when you're younger, your concept of the passage of time is a lot different than when you get older. So back then, what was only six months probably felt like years. Ain't that the truth. So when did you start taking the game more seriously? Like, when did it become this, like, craft and this passion? Like, when did you really transform into a competitive player? Well, like I said, I started playing all the time. I don't know why I enjoyed it. I don't like sitting down. I never have. I never will. Growing up as a kid, we'd be at a restaurant and I'd be standing on the chairs and they'd tell me to sit down. And, you know, I I just... (laughs) I used to, I literally, this is weird. I used to sit my, I used to be in my uh, my room standing playing video games. I would stand with a controller in my hand and I'd, I'd be standing for hours playing games. My parents told me, do you want a chair or anything? I said, no, I don't want to sit down. So I guess somehow uh, in the back of my mind, a video game that you're expected to stand and play kind of just resonated with me. But, um, you know, I, I was also really overweight as a, as a kid. And it was like, this was a physical thing. It was a social thing. It was fun. I had that arrow dream, which I don't know if people still have them today, but back then there were like subliminal messages in the backgrounds and you would literally see arrows whenever you closed your eyes. Did this ever happen to you? I don't know if if anything like that has happened that vividly, but there definitely are moments throughout my day where I just have step charts come up in my head or like when I'm listening to a song, I'm thinking about it as like rhythms in a step chart. Um, I don't know if I've had anything quite that vivid. It's it's a little more in, intense than that. It could be an age thing, like because I was so young. But all I know is everyone I knew who played back then, all of them had the arrow dream. So it might be a, a, an age thing, or it might have just been those PlayStation 1 graphics with like the flashing background animations mixed with the low-res arrows flashing like, Maybe that mixed into something that just burns into your brain. But yeah, I pretty much couldn't go anywhere without seeing arrows. And so I was just kind of like addicted and driven to go back and back over and over. And um, I used to think I was pretty good at the game. And um, this is skipping forward a bit, but third mix, we had third uh, third mix. And uh, back then, in order to play on what is now considered expert, you know, in order to play on Maniac, you had to insert a code on the front screen to access SSR mode, which is step-step revolution. And that was the only way to play Maniac Charts. Uh, in the normal game, you could only play uh, Basic and Trick. And um, I was not good enough to do Trick. And our machine was set to joint premium or doubles premium. So whenever somebody was playing by themselves, I would just be like, can I go with you? Because that'd mean I wouldn't have to wait and would also mean I could these other people were better than me so they always played on SSR which means I had to play on SSR because SSR forces maniac mode 
So I just kind of learned by failing every single song over and over until I didn't fail them anymore. Then that's kind of stuck with me. That's still how I play the game. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, I want to get a 980 or, you know, an 850 or whatever on all the 16s before I move on to 17s. I'm like, no, just pick the 17s. You know, fail them and learn them. You're not going to get better at 17s by playing 16s. People might argue with me on that, but, you know, that's that's my logic. So um, there was this kid who used to play Afronova backwards. He used to, I remember vividly, he was a skinny guy. He wore uh, the Jeanco bell-bottom giant, you know, and um, he would play the song backwards, Afronova Maniac. So I thought this was the best guy in the world. Keep in mind, in 1999, this is before, like, the Y2K. This is before cable modem. Most people didn't even really interact with the internet. You never thought, let me seek out a community online, you know. Internet, for me, was like Tiger the, the, the Tony the Tiger on the Kellogg's commercial said, use AOL keyword to visit my website. And that meant I wanted to go to the website and punch the keyword. I never thought to use the internet as a way to interact with people. So um, I thought this guy was the best guy in the world. Well, zoom forward a little bit. I think it was 2001 or 2002, and we had what was called the Castle Tournament in Tampa, Florida. Um, I'll never forget. It was run by this guy named DDR Jimmy, who I never saw again. And uh, it was at Malibu Grand Prix, which is like a go-kart place. And they had a DDR USA machine. Um, seating worked in the order that you uh, registered for, which is a great way to do seating. And um, it was single a limb. Um, I forgot how they determined songs were picked. I think it was just you go back and forth picking songs and you flip a coin to see who picks the first song. It was best two out of three. And I go up against, you know, some nobody, I beat him. I go up against somebody, I mean, everyone's a nobody at this point. I go against some other guy and I beat him. Um, and then I have this guy in the crowd looking for me and he goes, hey, are you Kaze? I said, yeah, that's me. And he goes, oh, okay, well, uh, you've probably heard of me, but this had to have been 2001 or 2002. He goes, you've probably heard of me. My name is Matt 300. I was like, okay. And he's like, you know why they call me Matt 300? like I have no idea and he goes because I can pass max 300 which was why I said it's probably 2001 because at this point max was out and uh I had no idea what max 300 is because I was in Tampa and the newest mix we had was third mix Korea version two so uh I, I don't know what max 300 is I and I definitely and he was from Orlando which I'm a kid that's two hours from me why would I know anything about you know that place that part of the world so um you know, I was like, okay, well, you're a nobody and I'm going to whoop you, right? So we go up against each other. It's machine score, by the way. So combo is important. And um, we play, I pick Afronova on him because that's the hardest song in the game. And I'm, I'm like, I'm the best. And, uh, you know, I broke combo here and there. And uh, then, you know, he beats me. So now we're on to the second song. And you know what song he picks? Is he picks Afronova. And I look back at the tournament organizer and I'm like, hey, we just played this song. And they said, well, yeah, but that's his pick. I'm like, you can't pick what we just played. Like, it's the same song. What's the point? And they said, no, no, there's nothing in the rules that says he can't do that. So we play Afronova again, and he beats me again. So, you know, it's 2-0. and oh, I'm out. I grab my stuff, and they go, no, no, you got to play the last song. I said, what do you mean I got to play the last song? It, it's two, for your first to two wins, right? Two out of three. And they said, yeah, but the machine is, you know, wasn't sent to event mode they credited up the machine. So like, you have to play the third song. So I'm being forced to humiliate myself. 
and play a third song, even though I've already lost. So I was like, this is humiliating. I hate everything about this. And I actually ended up uh, entering the, um, the freestyle tournament as well. I had a, a routine to I Believe in Miracles. And back then, it was considered uh, required that you played the song backwards. Like, on freestyle, you should be looking at the crowd, not at the machine. I noticed a lot of modern freestyles, people just watch the arrows. And to me, that makes no sense. You should be looking at the crowd. But so I memorized the charts and I practiced it. And the day of the tournament I played, you know what happened? I failed the song within the first 10 seconds because I forgot to turn on mirror. Oh no. Yeah. And so I am just like, I hate all of this. And um, back then, Pokemon was a huge part of my life. Uh, and I was like, he is now my rival and I will become the very best and I will beat him. Like, you know, fist up in the air. I was ready to, to go on my journey to become the best. So because I lost at that tournament, I was humiliated. I said, I will beat Matt 300. And from then on, like that was my goal. Also an interesting uh, little trivia here. Um, there was another person at this tournament who is still very prevalent. He's actually a celebrity now. And that's Alex Jabale. You know him from like CEO and stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah, so he used to play DDR back in the day. He used to go by Guinness back then. And uh, he got third place in tech and third place in freestyle. And I remember this was my first time meeting him. And during the award ceremony, he had two, three third place trophies. And he grabbed the mic. He's like, so it's almost like I actually won something. And uh, I thought that that was pretty funny. But, you know, who, who knew? So many people back then at this event would later on you know, go out to do such amazing things. So uh, it was a very small tournament. It was a local thing, but I think in the grand scheme of things, it was uh, it was really big and really important. That's a pretty amazing story, you know, from beginning to end with the, the rule sets of the tournament being so different and it being just kind of a, well, whatever, live and let live, pick songs, we'll flip a coin, like seating based on registration order. Like definitely there wasn't as much forethought put into like how to make this... Uh, a truly competitive event all the way to the story of Matt 300 where he introduces himself to you and he's like yeah you've probably heard of me do you know why they call me Matt 300 <laughs> it's because I can pass the hardest song in the game and you know I already sensed a bit of competitive spirit from you beforehand but that just really got you fired up and then after that match it was over like the the journey had begun yeah so that that was pretty much what set me on my competitive uh journey and um he used to go to we have a big tournament series in florida still do ddr storm and um you know i went to all of those we also used to have other local tournaments in fort lauderdale uh, orlando jacksonville because ddr storm used to be jacksonville and um I, I used to go to all them and matt 300 went to a lot of them as well and he beat me every time he, he was good okay and i got closer and closer and there was definitely a point in time where I surpassed him, right? And he stopped entering tournaments at, at that point. He was like, yeah, I don't compete anymore. I said, no, you're entering so I can whoop your ass, you know? And he goes, no, 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 you know, you, know, <laughs> you, you got to go out on, on top. And so that made me really mad. But I did end up playing him. There was a, uh, we used to have an arcade in uh, South Florida called the Nexus, which 
was the greatest arcade you could think of in 2004, you know, 2005. And um, it was the only place in Florida that had a poppin' music machine. They had a 2DX machine. They had an In the Groove 2 Dedicab. cab. They had a uh, DDR Supernova cab. That's supposed to be in 2006. Or, yeah, 2006, yeah. Uh, they had a um, DDR Supernova cab, In the Groove 2 Dedicab. cab. They had a Pump It Up NX or NX2 machine, you know, it was, and they, they had all tons of fighting games, and it was a land center, and uh, they were sponsored by Balls, the energy drink, um, and they uh, they used to do lock-ins, you know, pay, pay 10 or $20, you get to be there for 12 hours, from like 10 p.m. to 10 a.m., all you can play arcade games, and of course, if you're into computer games, it was a land center, so, you know, just stay up all night playing games, it was awesome, so I would always drive down to the lock-ins, and um, there were, they had a tournament lock-in on In The Groove 2. And uh, Matt showed up to this lock-in because he liked pop music a lot. And he wanted to play pop. And we all went down and it was fun. So it's like 7 in the morning. 7 or 8 in the morning. The tournament is still going on. Matt and I are encrusted in our own sweat. And we had passed out on the sofa. It was disgusting. Okay? And they wake us up. And they said, hey, it's time for the finals. It's me versus Matt at six or seven in the morning, literally just woken up from a power nap, dried sweat on our shirts and just like, it was awful. And um, the finals was only 13s. So the only songs we could pick from were Summer, Pandemonium and Vertex Squared. So uh, we played Summer and I beat him with like a 71%. He failed with like a 60 eight percent and but by the way both of us were capable of 99 it, and i won and i said matt i beat you and he said this one doesn't count i'm like nope we both are playing at eight in the morning on no sleep and we just both woke up this is a fair victory and um and he pretty much stopped entering after that so i did technically get my my victory it was not as uh as glorious as i hoped it would one day be but i still got to scratch that off my to-do list i'm surprised that it actually took so long you know i was i was kind of expecting the story to be like yeah well two tournaments later i got him easy and then it ended up being this drawn out affair well truth be told i did not get good at ddr very fast it took me like at least a year to be able to go up and do maniac i was on basic and trick forever i don't know why Everyone else was blasting past me. The difference is, is that I never stopped playing. And all these other people, like the kid who could do Afrodova backwards, you know, this other kid, you know, they stopped playing. Everyone who I used to play with stopped playing, but I kept playing the game. So I'm, I'm a very um, strong advocate of the whole slow and steady wins the race. You know, I, I didn't move up fast, but I moved up steadily. And, you know, at this point, I've been playing for... Uh, I guess it's 2020 now, so 20 years now. Yeah, it's a true grinder story. You know, some players are able to rise up very quickly, maybe not to the same point of mastery, but there are some people that possess a certain level of talent that when they put in the work, they can progress really quickly up to a certain point. And then from that point, it becomes a grind or it becomes, you know, it becomes more of a effort and hours based thing 
But for you, it was always about the hours and always the effort. And that's what led to your success. Well, another thing is I always believe in a strong foundation. And I've noticed with a lot of these other players, it's been this way for 15 years. But as they, they quickly boost up and zoom into being like, you know, really high tier, is they missed out on some of the basics. And because I spent so long in the basics that things that are now proving to be a problem for them are trivial to me. The main ones are slowdowns. We didn't have one X. I mean, sorry, we, we didn't have speed bots. We played on one X. You know, my summer love was a nine footer because of how slow it was, you know, not, I mean, the run is not hard, you know, back then, one X was the only thing you could play. Speed mods didn't even exist. So now when a song has some quarter BPM slowdown and everyone's like, yeah, I've got a memory. You know, I sight read the slowdown to Ace for Aces challenge. I remember that image went around Twitter and everyone was, you know, talking about how stupid it looked. I, I saw it and I was like, what? It goes right to the music. You know, I, I, I never had any trouble with it. You know, I, I don't even think it's a gimmick. It's, it's fun. You know, um, uh, other things would be like crossovers, um, you know, just certain like foot techniques, um, you know, that a lot of people now are, are just trying to, to build on because the newer songs are like from in the groove. They had the speed bots, they had the bar, they had the, the baby powder, they had the um, streams and foot speed and all this other stuff, which is great. Don't get me wrong. That's amazing. But because I'm, I was playing on bucket pads, I also played in steel toe boots and gothic uh, bondage pants. You know, that's where I grew up on. Um, you know, 1X, in, in an arcade, you couldn't hear anything at. Um, you know, uh, I also played No Bar. I did not know about the bar um, until Extreme. Um, even when Max and Max Unlimited came out, I did not know about the bar. It's not that I thought it was cheating. Back then, people did not think the bar was cheating. Nobody ever looked at it and said, I should hold this. It never crossed my mind, never once. We used to call it the trick bar. I thought it was, everyone thought it was for doing tricks for like trees for freestyles and matrix walking. You know what I mean? Um, nobody ever thought grab onto it and it'll make the game easier. So um, the first time I thought about using the bar was when that video of Yasu came out of him tripling Max three hundred um, on Max two, and everyone called him a cheater for using the bar. I remember looking at the video, not thinking he was cheating. I thought, huh. If you use the bar, it's easier. I never thought about that. I, it just never crossed my mind. So another thing would be like balance, you know, for playing no bar for so long um, is a skill. I think, I mean, modern players, they, from the day they stepped on the game for the first time, they were, they were grabbing the bar, you know? So uh, I did take longer, but I do think in the, in the end, it, it has paid off for me. That's a good point you bring up about, especially when it comes to like using the bar, speed mods, turning, things like that. Um, there definitely are some set of players that struggle with that because, you know, they've come up in a different time where everybody uses the bar and the charts are written so that they're a little less insane, I guess, with the type of patterns that they have you do. Like they're a little bit more tame and subtle. But then like a long time ago, I guess there was less refinement would be a good way to put it in the way that charts were written and they kind of made you do all of these crazy things. And also, like, from my own experience, I also did not use the bar for, I think, about my first year of play. I actually started using speed mods before I used the bar. And not because I thought it was cheating either. Like, I just didn't do it 
until I got to a certain level of competency and kind of realized that I wanted to be competitive. And then I realized that, you know, the bar was the thing that people use to help them do that. And, you know, kind of similar to the moment when you watch Yasu AAA Max 300, where it the right aha moment went off in your head. So I think it definitely helped me too to like take it slow when it came to introducing um, speed mods in the bar and other aids. And I, I think it helped me a lot too, though probably to a lesser degree. And you know, th this, is a, this is an aside, but another thing um, that really gets me about modern charts, I don't know if you've heard the joke or not even a joke to some people within the group, that you're not allowed to start a chart off with an up or down arrow. You ever heard that? Yeah, it's like an unspoken rule in chart writing. Right, because how do you know what foot to hit it with? And um, whereas I can get that concept, um, I realized, I actually had an epiphany not too long ago. Of course, it's irrelevant, but um, that it's not the chart's fault that you don't know what foot to hit it with. It's the player's fault, and here's why. If you were playing the song on 1X, you would know which foot to hit it with because you'd be seeing the next 16 arrows and you would, as they were coming up, you'd be able to see which foot you're going to need to use. But because people are playing that on four or five X, you can only see the first two arrows, you know? So of course you're not going to know which foot to hit with, right? I don't really think that's a problem with the charts. That's a problem with the player. And the reason why I came to this was because um, somebody was playing an old school chart and they were complaining that none of it, like, it was all ambiguous. And I think they were playing Brilliant to You Orchestra Special, um, Orchestra Mix uh, Challenge, which if you've ever played it, it's nothing but 270 turns, which back in the day, all of us used to turn, and it was always a blast to do. But when you're using speed mods, you just double, double step the whole thing, you know? And um, it's like, you can't have a chart that flowed 20 years ago and then now say it doesn't flow. Nothing has changed about the, the step chart. What has changed is how people play it. It used to be played on 1X. Now people are playing it on 4X and it looks different. But again, I don't, I don't think that's the chart's fault. So another thing um, I think that really has changed about the way players perceive patterns is, you know, different than back then. You know, back then you got to see a whole lot more. When I saw an Afronova run, you know, you turned it. That I never thought double stepping it would be easier. It probably is, but back then it was like, no, this is how you're supposed to do it, and this is how you will do it, which is very different from now, where it's no longer about how am I supposed to do this chart, but how can I make this chart easier? You know, and I think that really uh, makes players weaker because everyone's constantly making a chart to fit their play style, and so now when a chart comes out that you know, throws it all away, they didn't build up and work on those weaknesses. And it, and it really shows. Yeah, there's two different philosophies there. And the context is lost on players that were not around during that original time or hadn't been through as long of a time span of watching people play the game and being aware of the different styles. And, you know, they don't have as much of a skill palette as like some of the other players have who have been around for a really long time. And it makes sense from their perspective when they look at a chart and it's all 270 turns and they can only see three or four arrows at a time. Yeah, it's kind of hard to make sense of it. But when you play it on times one or a lower speed mod, even on like, you know, an extreme era chart, for example, then you can see where they were going. 
And um, I kind of had this similar, you know, come to Jesus moment as I got more and more into competitive DDR Ace and Ace 2-0, where I did come in with a mentality of like, wow, these charts are really silly. These in the groove customs are so much better. And that's not really a great perspective because it's two different philosophies. And I, I really gained an appreciation for the philosophy of DDR chart writing. And they've definitely taken a lot of risks with some of the newer, like harder charts, um, like possession 20th anniversary challenge comes to mind. Uh, Max 360 challenge, you know, everybody's favorite prey challenge and people's opinions on those charts vary drastically, but like I can appreciate what they're doing and a lot of the tech that are in some of those charts and the way that they fit within the DDR ACE and ACE 2 song list is very unique, you know, and they, they're a class of one. I have a very, very unpopular opinion, which I am the king of of unpopular opinion, opinions. And I'm not a hot take. I'm not like Tommy, where I just say something stupid and expect <laughs> to get a rise out of everyone. Okay, this is not a hot take. It's just an unpopular opinion, okay? I'm not trying to get a rise out of everyone. But I don't think that there are bad charts. I think all charts are amazing. Chart positivity hashtag, okay? Um, you can tell I don't use Twitter. The hashtag goes first. Hashtag chart positivity, okay? There are no such thing as bad charts. And there's also no such thing as bad patterns. There are patterns that I am good at and patterns that I am bad at. There are patterns that I prefer over others. But I think that every pattern is a legitimate pattern. Every chart is a legitimate chart. Every gimmick is a legit legitimate gimmick. Now, whether or not a tournament should be able to should be testing you on these skill sets or these patterns is, you know, when it comes to games like in the groove, well, that's up to the community to decide. You know, the community can say, well, this is a speed, um, a foot speed tournament or stamina tournament versus this is a tech or we're going to use the following charts and not the other ones. Or, you know, community gets to decide and curate what is going to be judged at this particular tournament. But DDR and Puppet Up don't have that filter. They'll make a chart and tough shit. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. It might be off sync. It might be double steps. It might be something you just hate. But, you know then veto it when it comes up against you because that's part of the tournament, you know? Um, that's part of the song list, it's never going away. So songs like Dead End Groove Radar come to mind. Um, honestly, songs like NGO, pretty much anything from Supernova 2, really. Um, but then you even have modern stuff like Prey, and you know everyone thought it's the dumbest thing ever, but guess what? It's not going away. It's in the game, so you know what? If, if, if you don't like it, that's a weakness, or you can work on it. Um, so when it comes to like, you know, you said different thought trains of thought, but like in the groove, uh, stepping, um, rhetoric versus DDRs versus pump it ups. I do not actually think any one is better than the other. Um, I do have a personal preference. Of course. I like brackets. I like bracket foot switches. I like turns pretty much. I like pump it up. Um, but any song that, uh, kind of resembles something like that in a four panel game is totally something I'm about. Um, and you know, I think all the games kind of have something they offer. So I couldn't really say one's better than the other, but they all have their own kind of distinct styles for sure. Yeah, I think that although it's a unpopular perspective in the sense that not many people share it, 
I think it's a really good perspective to have as a competitive player because when you say that there are no bad charts or there's no bad patterns or there's no bad gimmicks or whatever, you're taking the responsibility on yourself as a player to then, you know, be good at those skill sets because, you know, you're going to be judged on them at some point. They're going to come up in a card draw. You know, there's there's going to be some scenario where you're going to be tested. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in that, you know, shifting a lot more of the responsibility on the individual because there's so many things that get missed if you don't. Yeah, you know, um, if you've ever seen, I don't actually have any videos of it, but almost all of my Supernova 2 level 18 PFCs are on shuffle. In fact, not even Supernova, not just uh, 18s, but even stuff like, uh, what's that song? Um, Black Rose Garden, Unreal. I play that one on shuffle. Um, all of my NGO PFCs are on shuffle. Even my Paranoia Hades PFC is on shuffle, which some people think is crazy, but um, 300 double-stepping to me is the same thing as streaming. Like, it makes almost no difference. And um, I remember at a, a Rocky Mount, I think it was me versus either Brett the Flash or, uh, or Kevin Bodie, um, but we played Paranoia Survivor Max Challenge on shuffle. Because I think back then tournaments would start adding in mods as you got too many ties or maybe it was a rule set. Back then, it was a lot crazier, but they used to have mod boxes. And I remember I was playing it on Shuffle, and I got something crazy, like seven or eight greats full combo on PSMO Shuffle back then. And everyone was, like, freaking out, like, how, how are you so good at Shuffle? I'm like, I, I play Shuffle all the time. In fact, back in the old school days, we used to do S4R, which for the those listening who don't know what that is, um, it stands for Sudden Shuffle SSR. So that's going to be, at, you know, for S, so we call it S4R. Um, I know that Foyboy, uh, one of the you know, main developers of In the Groove, was uh, world famous for being really good at S4R. Um, of course, back then everyone played on 1X because there were no speed mods. But when they started releasing songs like Dropout, playing that, and we didn't use the bar. So playing something like Dropout on Sudden Shuffle, uh, you know, that's tricky. And another thing to mention is that once uh, past third mix, people would also turn on flat to be part of S4R. And the reason for that is because SSR mode, which was Maniac um, on third mix, did not have Vivid. The note skins were flat. You had to put in a cheat code in order to get Vivid. So to replicate that in the future, they would turn on flat because SSR required flat so the flat 1x shuffle sudden and um yeah it's like when max 300 came out very very few people could do that on s4 because 300 on sudden was you know pretty intense and and so the, the point being is that i used to play shuffle all the time and i love double stepping so when people say hey, the chart doesn't flow i'm like all right that's that's fine I, you know I, it's, I think it's a great technique and i've always thought there should be a chart where the difficulty comes from double-stepping. I've actually made charts like this. I have a chart to uh, G59, which was the sequel to Nageki no Ki. Um, it's pronounced uh, Jigoku in Japanese, um, which means hell. Uh, but yeah, point 50, or G59, It um, there's a run, and the sounds just sound so weird. And I thought, you know, this should just be a stream that doesn't flow. So it's just like 175 BPM, 16th of runs that don't flow at all. And I knew that if I released it, everyone would say it's terrible. But in my opinion, I think that being able to double step is a really 
valid skill sets, and I think that there should be songs that challenge that. So right now, no, we don't have anything like that, really. But, you know, one day, Konami could just say, here's a new 18, and it doesn't flow at all. And everyone would now be struggling to figure out how to do it, and I'd be like, all right, cool. And, you know, I think that uh, I think there are totally valid skill sets that still are not being tested. Right, that's, a, that's an interesting, like, perspective from the extreme of like if you consider one end of the extreme is like let's make these patterns curated such that they're really comfortable and they flow perfectly and they're just nice to play but then you have something like g59 where it's totally just mean and it looks like somebody did not know what they're doing <laughs> but really you were delivering you were doing it deliberately and that like it just proves a point that look this is a skill set i'm testing you on it it's fine if you don't want to do it and this is something i wanted to go back on from my um last comment too about this mindset in general is that like the content is out there and it's okay to not like something it's okay to you know get frustrated if you're like having issues with a particular skill and you don't find it that fun like that happens with everybody that's that's very normal it's a normal part of you know this competitive journey but it's neat that charts like g59 exist and that there are charts that are really pushing the boundaries like prey challenge where it's like okay here's a bunch of jumps it's it sucks it's painful it's really hard but you know but it is a skill set it's a thing that's there and it kind of shows you where the line is I appreciate that a lot, even if I don't always like it. And it's something to strive for too, as a competitor to where there's always something to work on. And, you know, as good as you can get, you can always get better. And I think that that's a, um, a very interesting thing about DDR versus in the group. By the way, if it hasn't been obvious, I, I'll play any dance game. If it has arrows, I'll play it. Technomotion, I played it. Um, when Rhythm Horizon happens, I'll play that. SMX, it's all good. You know, I'll play everything. Um, with DDR and In The Groove, I think that what really sets them apart is in the, uh, DDR is like a puzzle, I think. You're given a chart and it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And there's two ways of looking at it, although it doesn't really matter which way you look at it, is you could look at it, did they want me to do it this way or that way, right? You're trying to think from the step artist's perspective. The guy who made it, what was he thinking, right? The other perspective is this guy had no idea what he was doing, right? And to be honest with some DDR charts, it's probably more of the latter than the former, to be honest. But that's irrelevant how we got with those patterns. What matters is that we have those patterns now. And so DDR is like, well, how can I do this? And I think it's really cool because you see people with sudden plus techniques. I mean, I've seen some crazy ones now, like uh, Evil Dave did one with Fascination Max where he toggles it during the slowdown, which is really crazy. I know Paul is pretty famous for having his, like, you know, two millisecond sudden plus toggles. Uh, I personally, I've used a turn mod on certain songs. On Max Period Challenge, I use, I play it on Mirror, not because it makes any of the chart easier, but because the stop into the slowdown is a hold on down. And when I use Mirror, it makes it on a, a hold on up, so I can toggle the sudden plus. Um, you know, the, you see all sorts of new techniques. You see people using turn mods like left on May, on Dead End, on Paranoia Revolution Challenge. 
you see people using shuffle on different songs. Um, a pattern will come up and it's like, do you foot switch this? Do you double step it? Oh no, I, I start off sideways and hit with my right foot. You know, there's, there's all sorts of techniques. And I think that a really cool thing about DDR is a lot of the boss songs make no sense. And I, and then that's true. I mean, look at NGO. What is it? Right. And it, it makes no sense. And there's no right way to do it. So there's the way you do it. There's a way another one does it. And, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, you're going to find somebody who just discovered some new way to do it. It's like speed running. You know, somebody finally figures out this game breaking glitch. And now people are shaving off more time. Somebody's going to figure out a new technique to an old song. And it's just going to change the game. In the Groove is made by players for players. There's no puzzle to be solved. Every chart has a very specific way to do the chart. It all flows. In fact, whenever something looks like it's going to be ambiguous, they'll have a mine on one of the arrows to let you know you've got to lift your foot off that arrow. And you're going to, you know what I mean? It, it, it wouldn't say it babies you through the song, but In the Groove is not about solving a puzzle. It's about execution. Here is a really hard pattern. You know exactly how you have to do it. Can you do it or not? Let's find out. You know, passing a, a 19 or something on In the Groove, it's not a question of how do I do it? We know how you do it. It's a 16th note stream at 240 BPM. There's no how am I supposed to do it? It's just do it. Can you do it, right? Um, tricky rhythms like the Skittle notes, it's not... You know what I mean? So in the Groove is more about execution and performance. And nobody uses turn mods in In the Groove tournaments. I don't even think they're allowed. Uh, shuffle, you know, unheard of. People play the chart as it is, and then who's better at it? Whereas DDR is like, well, let me try shuffling this. Let me try, you know what I mean? And I think that makes the game really exciting and interesting in a completely different way. Right. Like there's more room for creativity and strategy and this, this something else you know, beyond just playing the game. As I've gotten more like in tune with the song list and I've also come across the songs where like left is people's preferred turn mod or one good anecdote for me as well was I think qualifying for infinity stage, Horatio Expert was one of the qualifiers and I was having a hard time beating my like 23 perfect PFC I had at the time. And Roger made flashcards for the three qualifier songs. And I know I think he played at least two out of the three on Mirror, if not all of them, and said that he plays Horatio Expert on Mirror, doesn't know why, but it works. And so I decided to give it a try. And within three attempts, I cut that perfect count in half. Absolutely. You know, it's just things like that, where just you can just try something new like that, or think outside the box, or... Um, for Trip Machine Evolution, I just recently figured out after watching uh, Kevin do his one-hand bar technique that I'm supposed to face right for like most of the jumps into crossovers, and it works out better than if I like try to figure it out on the fly. Like if I just face right for all of them and and, and it works, it's it's really cool and it's really rewarding once you figure stuff like that out. Um, and it is something I think that's more unique to DDR than in the groove, though. In the groove does offer different challenges. You're usually having way more complicated rhythms and like syncopated rhythms at that. Um, you know, brackets have become a really big part of the metagame lately. And, you know, they're going to test your speed and endurance 
in a more raw like can you do it way rather than um ddr which tends to be a little bit bursty like a little bit more short bursts than most like custom in the groove charts so it there definitely are different and i think their differences are something to be appreciated rather than you know rather than mocked or you know reduced to oh this is bad or this sucks it's like well they're not really necessarily there can be you know especially with ddr charts there definitely are some fair criticisms from stuff you know pre x3 i would say but generally speaking i think it's a better attitude to look at it as a like this is what we have regardless of how it got here let's figure out how to do it you know another thing is is stuff like dead end when it came out nobody thought i you could even triple a it on a supernova too like you know supernova 2 triple a i mean it was like it was pra- practically irrelevant now multiple people have, been, uh, have seen it um valkyrie dimension when the intro run came out uh it was physically impossible it was you know, it had to be a joke everyone mashed through it and now you've got videos of multiple people PFCing the intro run. You know, there's just stuff where it's like DDR, they didn't know what was doable and what's not doable. And again, I I know that in DDR's case, they literally have no idea. They made it and maybe somebody can do it or not. But I think it's cool that they'll make something that, you know, you can't or nobody knows how to, but over the course of time, players step up to the challenge. And, um, you know, moving back to... Uh, so I was saying about the different play styles. One other thing I did want to mention is that another interesting facet of DDR is that I might have a different way of playing the song if I'm going for money score versus if I'm going for EX score. You know, on something like um, on on Dead End, I might be more consistent at PFCing certain parts on left, but on Shuffle, my MA is way better. So in a tournament, I would always use Shuffle. But... Um, you know, something like Paranoia Hades, I can PFC it better on Shuffle, but my MA would be way better on Regular. So, um, depending on whether you're going for MA or, or so EX score versus Money score, your play style might change. Another thing that really varies between players is, like, gimmicks. You know, play the song on 1.5 so you can read the speed up, and then the rest of the song is slow, and you're using Sudden Plus, or use 3X and just memorize the speed up. I think that's a big thing you'll see right now with like Orca, because the speed ups are very easy to memorize. So you're gonna have players using 1.5 or 1.75, and then the other part of the players using 3.5 and 4. So of course you have Chris who just memorizes everything, but seeing a large bulk of the players being kind of 50-50 really shows that there's really no one right way to uh, tackle uh, a diff- you know a challenge in in DDR, you know, it's, you find the way that works best for you. I think that's a good thing too, with regard to like tilting and with regard to like plateauing mental blocks, like there's something new to try and there's usually multiple different paths you can get, uh, or you can, that you can go to achieve, you know, whatever result you want. And, you know, some people do go the memorization route. Some people go the sudden plus route. Um, and for some people, it's not cut and dry given a particular set of parameters what they will do for their mods you know for reading speed or their technique for me um i was just talking about this the other day uh with some other players for certain songs that are in like the 180 185 bpm range i'll use 3.25 with a smidge of sudden plus at the bottom of the screen 
but there are other songs where like it's higher density or there's more streams or there's like a little less turning or you know things that i need to look ahead for and then i'll read it on three five and my ma is better um but it's you know but there's not a recipe of like this song is within this bpm range therefore i will use this speed mod it can vary across every chart individually and that's that's true i think across a lot of different groups of songs in the game which is really cool because if something isn't working you have something new to try that can potentially allow you to break through so we've talked a lot about the mentality and some of the you know puzzle solving and some of the creative aspects of competitive ddr and you know i think that speaks to a lot of people particularly those who are like more competitively minded and who want to become the very best players but i want to get to some story time because uh we've had a couple of other um, Southeast dance game players on the podcast before who have mentioned some stories of which you were a part of and um, and some that you were not as well. But I wanted to ask you about some of the tournament experiences that shaped you or some of the experiences with, you know, with you being one of the original like competitive players in the Southeast US, you know, your experiences watching some of the now like really good players of the game come up when they were young like how your how you developed as a competitive player over that time and just you know whatever shit you want to talk <laughs> now is the perfect time to do it well we gotta start off with the obvious one okay both they both talked about the salty car ride with liam you heard this one i have okay so they they said they said something about you know let's start from the top okay so me Christopher Austin, Soul of Ignorance, um, Leon Brunson, uh, Fun Size Twix, and uh, his friend Richard, and I think David Hansen, goes by Davo, uh, we, we were all in a road trip from Florida up to South or North Carolina, wherever the, the Rocky Mount was. I want to say it was Rocky Mount X or Rocky Mount 11 or whatever. And we went up there. This was kind of when Rocky Mount was not as big as it was, kind of like in the groove, kind of was not as big now. But um, so we did, there were not visitors from all across the country. It was not like a nationals anymore, but it was still a really big turnout. Um, and uh, at the time, I had secretly been playing in the groove because um, I had a DDR machine at at home that I had just gotten and I threw in the groove on there and we all been playing and practicing. So nobody knew that I had gotten back in, in I'd gotten back in the groove, right? To do And um, I mainly played pump at the time, which is a huge uh, portion of my career to be honest. But um, so we all pretty much enter everything. And uh, there were some clutch matches. I ended up winning Supernova 2. Um, mainly because of memorization on the boss songs that still nobody knew. Supernova 2 was the newest thing anybody could play because, you know, we didn't have X machines or anything newer than that. Um, so you pretty much picked Pluto, then Pluto K uh, Challenge, Chaos, then Chaos Challenge, Healing Divinity, you know, and then you won because yeah, nobody else had them memorized. Um, so that wasn't really much of anything. Uh, pump it up. It was me versus J-Boy in the finals. And, uh, you know, I think that he might have a minor mental block against me 
I mean, he definitely plays pump it up way, way more than I do. But I think he made a critical mistake, which this goes out to everybody here. And that is, do not pick your song based on what your opponent is weak at. Pick your song based on what you are good at. Because if you pick something that you're kind of, you know, good at, but you know they're bad at it, well, guess what? What if they're not bad at it? Right? You picked your strengths. And so he picked Energizer S16 against me. We should be playing 24s and up. Why is he picking a 16 against me? Well, I'll tell you why. The end of the song has four, three or four very unorthodox triples. It's all three corners. Like, da, 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 da. And. Oh, yeah, I remember this part. Yeah, and it's, it's corner triples, which a lot of charts don't do. And I guess he thought that my feet weren't big enough to hit them. <laughs> I mean, he, do, he does know I play Pump It Up, right? So, anyways, I triple S the song. Well, back then it was double S, but I got all purpose. Um, he, I think, got him one great or something like that, and I won. And I look at him and said, Why did you pick that? He says, I didn't think you'd be able to hit them. I was like, All right, well, GG, and, you know, I won. This was the tournament where the true shit talking began. And I'm going to warn you right now Florida players are a different breed from the rest of the country. Uh, we often say, and don't get me, I love the North Cal- uh, California community. Northern California community is incredible. However, what happens in Florida stays in Florida. And the reason I bring them up is because I feel like they are the polar opposite of Florida players. Northern California community is so welcoming. They're all about protecting everybody, having a welcoming community. They're just so kind and good to each other. Florida, no. We talk shit. We sabotage everybody. It's all about making everybody feel like absolute shit. You just really bad stuff, okay? Which, you know, it's it's not friendly. But it is friendly amongst friends. The thing about the Florida community is that a lot of them will do it to even people they don't know, which is probably not a good thing. But it's just kind of like the law of the land. Um, I mean, like I said, CEO is a fighting game in Florida, or a tournament in Florida. And if you've seen the way that fighting game players interact, just imagine that, but with dance game shit talking, okay? So one of the things we had come up with was, at the time, getting salty about stuff was getting popular. And so I forgot who I was talking with. I don't know if it was Leon or David, but we were like, yo, how fucking great would it be if we started bringing salt packets to tournaments and when you beat a player, just handing them a salt packet. <laughs> and I, rem- and oh I remember Supernova 2, I think it was like on Gorgeous 2012 or whatever. And I had a salt packet in my pocket. So I grabbed it out of my pocket. My fist was kind of clenched. And I opened my hand with my thumb still holding the packet. And I said, hey, man, good game. So I shake his hand, right? You know, just a friendly GG, right? Shake his hand. He's like, yeah, good game. And, of course, the salt packet's in my hand. So as I, you know, we're done shaking, he sees that there's now a packet of salt in his hands. And he looks at it. He he looks at me. He goes, salty i'm not the one who's salty you're the one who's salty and like steams out and me and me and leon are just dying and um so we kind of get that running throughout the uh the tournament 
And I remember when I knocked Leon out of DDR, he was so mad that I opened up the salt packet and fucking poured it on his head. I just started pouring salt packets all over Leon. He was furious, but he was also laughing the entire time because he knows that he was he would have done the same damn shit to me if he had won. So, um, you know, it was kind of like a lawless land back then. But so I beat him. Uh, it's me and Flash in the finals uh, for In the Groove. And he has his own Dedicab. He has been killing it. This was when, like, Brett was at the top of his In the Groove game. So there was no question he was going to win, especially against me, who doesn't play. And little did they know I, I was playing. And we played um, Work. You know, the one with all the foot switches? Put it in. Work. Yeah. 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 And he messed up a number of the foot switches. It got misses. And I didn't. And I beat him on that. I think that was his pick or something. And then uh, the one that I picked, because I saw that, is I picked um, Sidewalk Talk, which is a which is another foot switch chart. And uh, I think he messed up like the 24th or whatever. So I ended up beating him. And it was like, and, you know, Kaze wins. It was like, the hell I won in the groove. So um, I won Pump against J-Boy. I won in the groove against Brent. And it was me and Christopher Austin in Supernova 2 finals and DDR Extreme finals. And um, this is where the story gets complicated. Because everyone, they claim that me and Chris colluded. They screamed collusion at us. And I am a I am a man of great competitive sport and spirit, and I would never drop to the levels of collusion, okay? But what happened was um, Chris and I played Sakura in the finals, and he was beating me. And he got like a bad on that one step in like the stop, you know, the really hard one. Um, he got like a bad there and everyone's like, no. And then he got like a good on the step after and he messed up the ending run. So I beat him on Sakura and the next song was Bax Limited. And during the slowdown, you know, where it's the stop, right? And hit the like, don't, 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 don't jump. Right. And he's doing some crazy ass, some crazy ass gallop ghost stepping. It's like, or something, right? It messed me up pretty bad, but it messed him up way worse. And I ended up beating him on both songs, and so I won. And then it's time for a match in Supernova, and he goes, I don't even want to play that. He can have it. So I ended up getting first in both. Leon, Richard, David, they all swore up and down that me and Chris colluded to give me first for both and him second for both and that we would split the winnings. I don't agree with that conversation. <laughs> well, what happened to the winnings then? So let me get to that. So then there was a raffle, okay? Uh, everyone bought like a $1 ticket to the raffle and um, there was like a, a couple different raffle winners. And one of the big raffle winners was Richard. So Richard won the raffle, and he got, like, a big prize, right? Uh, David got third in, in, in the groove, 
and third in pump it up. Chris got second in both of the DDRs and I got first in everything. And as we're leaving, we get in the car. I was like, Leon, you do realize I won every single tournament there. He goes, you and Chris colluded. I said, Leon, you realize I won every single tournament they had at this event. Cause we were talking shit to drive up about how he was going to whoop my ass. He didn't touch me. He, he had nothing to do with that tournament. Nobody even knows he went to the tournament, to be honest. And um, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even think he's in any of the photos. I think it's just really hearsay that, that he went. It's like a rumor. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so we're driving back, and um, I was like, wait a second. So I got first in everything. Chris got second in both DDRs. David got third in two of the tournaments, and Richard won the raffle. Leon, did you even place in anything? And there was silence. I said, Leon, did you place in anything? It's like, I don't want to talk about it. And so for the next 12 hours, I kid you not, there was not a moment that went by. The entire drive back. By the way, Chris, uh, Richard was driving and David was in the front. Me, Chris, and Leon are in the back. Me and Chris are sitting right around us. He's donut. He's squashed and sandwiched between us. We, from both ear holes, are talking shit to him about how he talked all this smack on the way up and he didn't even place in anything. Even Richard won the raffle. Leon didn't get anything. And that is the salty car ride. That's the salty car ride. That sounds like torture. Yeah, that's one, that's one of my uh, one of my favorite moments, but uh, it's good. It's good. <laughs> oh, real quick. Um, shit talking as a form of endearment, I can kind of understand because although it, it definitely wasn't to that level, you know, like it was with that car ride or what the norm was, you know, within the Florida scene internally, you know, growing up in the Northeast and playing with a lot of the Northeast best players, there definitely was some good natured ribbing between like a lot of the competitive players. And like when we used to play like ITG at, um, at various people's houses and different setups and, you know, not so much at tournaments when we were playing like casually, there'd be a lot of, you know, just, you know, making fun of each other for like messing up an easy part in a song. That's like, otherwise like not too hard to quad or like, you know, just doing something really silly or like, you know, if there was an upset where like the clear, clearly the better player did not perform better and the other player won, there was definitely a lot of that going on. And there was, you know, especially online, a lot of people getting on each other, you know, and that's that was endearing that, you know, it sounds kind of fucked up, especially now in like the the modern landscape where everybody is a lot more protective and supportive. And I think I think honestly, it's better that way in general. You know, it's a lot more accessible for people and a lot of people would get turned off by that type of behavior um, otherwise. But, you know, back then it was a lot different. It was more of an accepted part of the culture in these areas. And at the end of the day, like we all showed up the next day to play dance games with each other again. It was a very strange thing where like we all, you know, kind of had our fair share of talking shit and giving each other, you know, sass. But at the end of the day, we all still showed up together. I forget what it's called. Um, switching, it might be the term I'm looking for, but it's where 
you speak differently to different people based on the, um, not demographic, but based on the, you know, the, the situation, right? So you have the way that you speak around these people and the way you speak around these people, you know, um, and I'm, I'm really big on that, especially because you know, I speak multiple languages as well. So I, I've got like multiple personalities based on kind of who I'm talking, you know, and, um, I agree. It's totally great to have the accepting, friendly, uh, environment, but that doesn't mean that when I'm with team Florida, you know, and it's just us that it isn't, you know, we, we don't, we definitely time travel back 15 years when we're in the same room. So, uh, you know, one thing that we've recently came up with, and we would never say this in front of anybody, but is uh, when somebody is getting just totally destroyed in a tournament, right? Um, like, I remember, I think it was at the big deal, and I'm not going to say who was playing who, but they were just getting trashed. And I looked at Leon and I was like, should should we be watching this? Like, <laughs> like I think I just witnessed a murder. Like, this was a, this was a public execution. Like, it was just, you know, it was, it was just a, you know what I mean? Like, just, and we, we have all sorts of things that we've been coming up with. And we're just sitting over there dying in the corner, you know, talking about this match. And everyone's like, what's going on? I'm like, no, no, don't worry about it. You know, not really talking shit about anybody, but just like, just doing some Florida commentating on like how badly this guy's getting roasted or, or, you know, once you see somebody miss a critical step, it's like, oh, you hate to see it. You know, yep. it's just, mm, I could, mm, you know, you, you were just like making these faces in the corner and someone like, are you all right? <laughs> um, but, uh, one thing that you'll probably hear a lot of team Florida players use, and I've heard other people say it now too. They probably don't know its origins, and they're less than humble. But I figured this is a good place to explain it. Have you ever heard me or Leon or somebody scream "bust back" during a match? I want to say I've heard it before. Okay, so it's like if you're about to pass something, but you look like you're starting to get tired, you're about to fail, or you look like you're about to give up. You know, you have your your buddy in the in the crowd, and you're like, just "Fucking bust back!" Just fucking do it, right? That's like, it revitalizes you. It gives you this new energy. And, um, you know, it's, uh, what is it? Um, it's something that, that came uh, from, from you know, pretty much between me and Leon. And here's the story behind that. Is there's a song in Pump It Up, NX, called Bust Back by a, uh, a group called DBS or something like that. So. Oh, yeah, I know this song. You know the song? You ever heard the lyrics? I, I know certain parts of the song. Okay, yeah. I All right. Well, so obviously this is Pump It Up, and they 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 actually just released a new song that has this problem, but they have no idea what English is. They don't speak English, and they don't filter any of the songs they license. So um, back in the NX, they wanted all these hip-hop songs, and pretty much on all of them, they dropped the N-word like 20 times, Okay which I guess in Korea is fine, but obviously when it comes over here, that's a problem. And in that song, Bust Back, he says it like 50 times. So we're going to just use the word ninja, okay? But the lyrics in the song is, if a ninja want to come in my face, I bust back, all right? And I was, me and my roommate at the time, Dom, we're looking at each other, we're like, what does that lyric mean? Like a ninja wanted to come in my face, I bust back. Like clearly the lyrics mean 
like if somebody's trying to fight you, you, you fight them back. Like trying to come in my face, I bust back, right? But of course, we were in college and we thought it was funnier to interpret it as if a ninja just like comes in your face. What would you do? Well, I would just, I would, I would bust back at him. Like I'd bust. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if he wants to come in my face, the very obvious response to that would be to bust back. <laughs> and uh that's that's the lyrics to the song and so that just turned into a you know what would you do in this situation and the answer is always to bust back and that i, I remember explaining this to leon and just during one of the songs like hudson just fucking bust back and i was like you're right i should just bust back and that turned into you know when you're losing in a song or you're about to fail or whatever, like just fuck it, just bust back, just do it, you know? And uh, it's really revitalizing. It's, um, you know, that you hear it and it's like, you're absolutely right. And that's what the origins of where that came from. So thank you, Andamira, for licensing that song. I actually made a chart to it um, that I wanted to submit into SMH tournaments or step charts made horribly. So it was a joke chart, obviously, but unfortunately, in order to practice it, he put the pack at the local bowling alley, Acme Bowl, and um, it had to be arcade friendly. And he says, I can't put that song in the pack because it's not, um, you know, uh, was, uh, appropriate for public. My argument was it's in Pump It Up NX, which is in public. But of course, you know, he, he didn't put it in. So that's an unreleased chart, but I did make one to bust back. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's that's where that came from. I don't know how we got there. <laughs> that's pretty funny, though, that it actually came from like the Pump It Up song and specifically a certain line in the lyrics. You got to admit, those lyrics are kind of whack. They, they are. They're, they're borderline nonsense. But there's one nugget that we got out of it. Oh, and it's, and it's a nugget of gold. Uh, just like most of the uh, country, after like Supernova and Supernova 2, I mean, the community pretty much died because nobody had access to anything anymore. Um, Florida was always pretty desolate in terms of dedicabs. Um, and then that was basically it. So all the Jacksonville players who used to do DDR Storm and you know, they, they couldn't play anymore um, because once DDRX came out, you know, it was unplayable. And there was no dedicap, you were done unless you played Pump. Uh, in Daytona, they had one machine. It was decent for a while. Turned to crap, nobody played anymore. Um, same thing happened in Florida. We lost our machine right at about R16. So we never even got to do customs um, in Tampa. Uh, so I couldn't play. Nobody could play uh, for In The Groove, no DDR, and so pretty much died. Um, Tallahassee or Pensacola, like the Panhandle, which is not real Florida, but they'll try and tell you it is. Um, that's where like Leon and uh, Soul of Ignorance played. And um, I don't know if they had access to In The Groove. I think they mainly played Supernova 1. I don't even think they had Supernova 2. And they went through and they just tripled the whole game and think they kind of fell out of the scene from there as well um so at that point i switched over to playing pump i mean that's technically where i started anyways i always played pump it up 
pretty much throughout the whole time. And at this point, it was just like, all right, well, I'm just going to make Pump It Up my main game. And, uh, and I played a lot of Pump then. Uh, there's a lot of jumping around here. You know, we're going through 20 years worth of, of stuff, so I can't really remember the exact order of some things. But um, I also lived in Japan at multiple points throughout my career. Uh, I lived there during the Supernova era. I lived there during the Supernova 2 era. Uh, not error, era, era, uh, and X, and X2. So I also couldn't tell you too much about what happened in the Southeast during those time periods because I wasn't even there. Well, let's instead focus then on Japan because that's something I did want to talk to you more about. So while you were in Japan, it seems like nowadays um, there's – a bit more overlap between like the Japanese DDR community and some of the U S players and extra exclusive and Konami arcade championship kind of being opened up to the globe are big reasons for that. And that you have a large part in that as well. So um, I'm curious to tell me more about your experiences in Japan and how they've shaped not only like your career um, with round one, but also just with, the community becoming more globally connected. Yeah, and that that's 100% uh, thanks to DDRA. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people using this word. I don't want to act like I'm the pioneer or anything like that, but I did an interview with uh, Polygon when I was in uh, KEC for the uh, for the first year we had it. And um, one of the things I'm highly quoted on was when I said, it's kind of like and a dance game renaissance was something that I said. And I've heard a lot of people saying it since then. Um, but yeah, that's when we got ace, that was it. That was the, the moment you knew it was all about to change. Um, I know that everyone was super, uh, what is it? Um, not weary. What's the, yeah, is that the word? Like they skeptical, you know, cause we have been screwed over so many times. Japan got supernova when it came out brand new machines. It was perfect. E-amusement, everything. We got Supernova. Brand new machine, not quite as nice. Minor changes. Um, no e-amusement. Wow. Uh, okay, great. So Japan got, you know, unlocks uh, over the course of time. They had an event song. Uh, we did not have any of that. Then Supernova 2 came out. Japan got the same thing. Supernova 2 in the U.S., we didn't have that. Um, and also, I don't know if you know this, but they did not release upgrade kits from Supernova to Supernova 2. They did not sell upgrade kits. I think there was a rumor that they were going to do 50 upgrade kits, and you had to, like, pre-order them prior from Supernova 2 coming out. But to my knowledge, those never actually came out. So you couldn't upgrade a Supernova to Supernova 2. So Vetsen also did not sell Supernova upgrade kits. So all of the hundreds or thousands of DDR machines running probably an illegal bootleg extreme from China um, or DDR Megamix, our favorite, um, all across the US in old school DDR USA or Korean cabinets, even Japanese cabinets, you could not upgrade to Supernova, period. You had to buy a brand new eight to $10,000 cabinet to get Supernova. And then a year later, they expected American operators to buy another ten to $12,000 cabinet to get Supernova 2, which is why there's way less Supernova 2s than there are 1s. So 
now you have very few Supernova 2s. Well, this is annoying, but the game is still great. And then X comes out. And we all know what DDRX, you know, looks like in the U.S. So we don't need to dive too much into that. But they, again, did not sell upgrade kits for Supernova 2 cabinets to X. So, again, even less X machines because it was more expensive. And that's two years back-to-back of buying brand-new cabinets. Nobody bought it. And then, of course, you can repeat that again for X2, and they killed off the game in the U.S. Not to mention we did not get online support. And X actually in Japan brought back edit support, and we did not get that as I. So after being screwed over year after year after year, you know, close to a decade goes by, and then they said, yeah, they're going to bring DDR Ace to the U.S. Everyone's like, yeah, right. And then they said, yeah, and it's going to have e-amusement. Yeah, it'll probably be some crappy e-amusement, or we were promised this before. You know, there's there was no way we were going to get anything that would work. It was just no questions. And so the rumors started leaking. You know, people saw the machine showing up at PHM you know, round one, and they said, "Yeah, no, it's like a Japanese cabinet." Everyone's like, "No, there's no way." Uh, well, it's it's got e-amusement. No, no, there's no way. It's like real e-amusement. And then it's like, yeah, well, maybe this is just one, or maybe it's just temporary. Or we're going to be missing content, or it'll be a separate server, or whatever, right? But no, we got it, and it was it was DDR, Ace, what Japan had in English in the U.S. being spread to all David, like to David Buster's and round ones across the country. And it was like people really, really had a lot of trouble believing it was real. And I think that when they announced KAC, and they said, by the way, America, you're invited. That was when it was official. It was like, wait, it's, this is it. We're legit now. And I think ever since then, that gap between the Japanese community and, well, not just Japan, I mean, you know, Korea, Taiwan, just the international community, that gap instantly vanished the second they added us to the, um, to the network of games. And uh, I really hope in the not too distant future, they add Europe to that list of places that gets added because they're still kind of being left in the dust. But yeah, that was really when um really when the gap closed. Yeah, that was a really big moment and I remember I was definitely was not in on it from the beginning like um like the West Coast was where they got some of the new machines first, but that was that was a really big deal and you, you know you're right that there was a lot of frustration within the you know within the worldwide community of like why does why does Japan have this and yet we get, you know, these crappy, you know, cabinets and like, it's almost like they didn't want it to succeed. It was like, just, I couldn't really figure out whether it was mismanagement or what really. So this is just hearsay. I don't know how accurate this is, but I'm under the impression, or I've been told from various sources that it is not 100% Konami's fault for everything that happened. I, I remember, I think it was in 2003 or 2004, probably 2002 or 2003, that Konami's U.S. Uh, amusement division closed its doors. Because up until then, Konami, of course, had DDR USA. They also had games like, uh, I think it was called Police 911. It used like a sensor and like you could hide behind stuff. Oh yeah, I remember that game. Yeah, Konami was releasing arcade games in the U.S. Um, and then when they closed their doors, that was it. No more U.S. releases. So, of course, that meant no more DDRs, et cetera, et cetera. And every fifth mix, max, max two, 
extreme machine you found in the U.S. is not running American software. It's all imported, and they're all probably bootleg anyways, but we never really had any official U.S. release after DDR-USA. So um, when they closed their doors, I guess they wanted to release Supernova internationally when they brought the games back after suing Rockstar over in the group. And at that point, Konami no longer had a U.S. amusement division. So they went through Betson as their official distributor. Uh, Betson being the largest um, you know, amusement distributor in, in the U.S. So it was an obvious choice. And to my knowledge, again, this is not any insider info. This is just stuff that I've heard, so it may or may not be true. But to my knowledge, they signed a contract with Betson, which guaranteed them five years of exclusive distribution rights to DDR, which makes sense. They want to be the exclusive distributor, and that's all fine. That was a five-year contract. And one of the, the rules of it was that Betson did not want to import hundreds of Japanese machines. They wanted them built locally. And Konami agreed to this, sent over the blueprints. I'm sure Aaron in Japan could probably give you better details on this. Um, I basically said, here's how they're made. Tell, tell this to your factory. And so Benson had the machines made. For Supernova and Supernova 2, I think they were pretty much identical, except for the position of some things or maybe the materials of some things. The, the cabinets felt pretty good. Um, and uh, they wanted to maximize profits. So when X came out, Betson said, we don't need those side lights. We don't need this. And at that point, Betson had also bought out Raw Thrills, um, Play Mechanics, you know, the, the companies that make uh, like the Guitar Hero Arcade and Fast and Furious and stuff. And all of those games used the same monitors, the same computers, the same I.O. boards and everything. And Betson being the exclusive distributor of DDR said, yeah, well, we're going to modify the, uh, the design a bit to streamline it. So they used the same monitor in it as Guitar Hero, the same computer, the same everything, and DDR was not designed to run on that stuff. That monitor has awful lag. The computer's not good enough to run two players on the DDR. You know, like the, the 3D generation or the, the graphics. The graphics card's not powerful enough to, to run the 3D dancers in the background. So you ended up with DDRX and X2 that don't even run because the cabinet was made so poorly. And I don't think it was so much Konami gave up on the U.S. Konami was locked into a contract with Betson, and they really couldn't do anything. I mean, that's my understanding, is that Betson's the one who really threw us under the bus, not Konami. And realistically, I don't think Konami did anything wrong. They they went with the biggest distributor. They said, here you go, and they, I guess they assumed everything would be fine. Um, and it wasn't. But I think that they've taken this opportunity now that they're not locked under anything and the machines are actually still being manufactured overseas. We're getting the same thing as the rest of the planet. Like we're getting the same machines everybody else's. So there's no there's no more of that being at a disadvantage, you know. Right. That story makes a lot of sense. And knowing that they had exclusive distribution rights and that they really didn't have any sentimental value towards the game, it really informs a lot of their decisions specifically with X and X2, where the machines just really went downhill and the experience was so bad. Um, and that, you know, Konami really sounds like they just couldn't really do much legally that Betson was able to do whatever they wanted and just kind of unknowingly drove it into the ground. 
And so then like no wonder Konami pulled out because, you know, people weren't able to buy upgrade kits. The machines were not running properly. So the enthusiasts were not going to go play. And the people that were probably playing casually were also having a worse experience. Um, you know, it just, it just didn't work. And then there's a reason why, you know, Ace and Ace 2.0 have been so successful over here. And it's because like Konami's vision for the game has been perfectly replicated, you know, from Japan to the US and to the rest of the world where it's available. And that's so huge. Let's talk about KAC real quick, and then we'll, we'll kind of backtrack to the uh, to the Japan experience. But I feel like this is another important story that people probably want to hear. And I want to start off with saying, first and foremost, Paul, you're an amazing guy. I am so sorry I had to do you like this. Okay? So you guys know that I became the, uh, the wild card for the first year. Right. And there's a story behind that. And the story was, there was really only a few locations that even had DDR yet at this point. They started showing up in the summer or late summer. And KEC qualifying was in November, December. So most places were just getting their machines. Round one only had maybe eight or nine locations, maybe 10 at this point. So really it, it was, it, it had just gotten out. So most of the, the big name people didn't even have access to the game yet. I was in Seattle, so I had access. Chris Chike and Jeff were in, you know, Northern California, so they had access. And then of course, uh, Paul lived in Chicago uh, and they had access, but that, that was really it. So um, we were all, you know, playing and, and playing the sets, group A, group B. Back then, I think that that year was unique in that you had to play all the songs uh, for group A or group B in a set, like Idola style, whereas now you just grind until you get your best score. So you could be doing amazing on the first two songs, screw up the final song and that was it, play the set again, you know? So getting it all clean was really difficult. And um, I, I was doing pretty well. Paul was doing really well. And um, I remember after Group B came out, I pretty much played nothing but Group B. And I, I didn't really go back to Group A much. Um, and I was, the night before the last day, I was grinding Group B because I thought I could get past Paul. And um, I grinded and grinded and I ended up raising my Group B by quite a bit, but I was still just short of Paul. But I was thinking to myself, you know what, I can, I can still raise my Group A. I really haven't played this too much since the Group A period, right? And it's the next day. I, it's, I get off work. I message Paul. And Paul had just finished raising his set. I said, hey, you planning on going back tonight? And he goes, no, man, I'm, I'm done. Like, I'm, keep in mind, I'm in the West Coast time. He's in Central. So uh, it's later for him. And he goes, no, uh, I'm I'm feeling pretty comfortable where I'm at. You know, I don't plan on going back to the arcade. What about you? And I was like, nah, man, I'm I gotta go home. You know, watch the kids and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, congratulations, right? So I texted him. He said congratulations, and he went to sleep. Okay, because it's like 9 p.m. over there. It's 7 p.m. for me. I get home from work, and we put you know my daughter to sleep. And I said, hey, uh, I asked my wife today's the last day of qualifying. Can I go back to round one? And she's like, that's fine. So I get my car. I blast on down to round one. I'm like, I am going 
raised my group A score. And um, I think we had two machines at the time. Uh, I know that I, I pretty much hogged the machine. I, I think I made, like I messaged the casual, the usual people, and I said, don't come to round one tonight, I'm doing qualifying. And so like, I just kept the machine to myself. Some people did show up, but nobody played on it. They played on the other machine because they knew what I was doing, right? And uh, I, I played over and over and over, and actually pretty short into my session, I had a really nice raise on my group A. And I sat there looking at the current rankings, right? And I, because it was in a group, I had to take a photo of the results screen of my set. And I had to add the numbers of the EX together and then subtract the old EX score I had from my ranking score and add the new score in to calculate what my new score would be. I sat there and I did the math like 20 times. And I'm like, that, that should be it. That puts me six over Paul. Hold on, let me just do the math again, right? I'm like, okay, if I have this much EX, I did the math like 30 times. I'm like, this, this puts me six points over. So I should be safe. The problem was is that the qualifying ended like an hour after we closed, right? Um, and it only updated once every 16 hours. So I wouldn't know if I actually beat his score until it updated. And um, I just had to sit there and trust my math. I played the set a few more times, but I was nowhere getting what I had gotten on that first, you know, on that one set. So I was like, I just, that's going to be my raise. I hope last minute nobody else raises like I just did. I really hope that this goes through and that my math is right. So I go home. I refreshed multiple times throughout the night. It never updated my score. It still had Paul as third and me as fourth. And I go to sleep and I wake up and Paul's wall has over a hundred comments congratulating him on being the wild card. I look at the KEC site and it still has Paul as third, okay? And me as fourth, right? I'm like, did it not accept my score? The, the event folder was still there and the qualifying period didn't end until three in the morning. Why did it not update my score? And I remember asking, like, I think it was Dr. D because he was really knowledgeable about it. He goes, no, it's every 16 hours. So it'll update at around 10 a.m., right? So 10 a.m. rolls around and I refresh it and boom, I'm in third. <laughs> I, I was just like, you don't understand the grin on my face. I was like, yo, is this it? Like, are we in? Like, is this legit? You know? And uh, some people were like in the, in the chat and they were like, wait, did, did somebody or did Paul not get third? Why am I hearing? And everyone looks at the site like, wait, Kaze, you're third? And I'm like, I mean, I, I might have gone to play last night. You know, competition is ruthless. People will do anything that they can do to win. And uh, I, I think I played my cards correctly, whether or not it was the uh, gentlemanly thing to do. Um, but, you know, I, I fully expect somebody to do something like that to me. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Um, so, you know, the, there, that's where the, the saying comes, don't sleep on me, you know, literally. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that was the, the KC wildcard story. And I still didn't know if it was all official or what was going to go until like literally days later. It was not instant. Days later, I got an email from Konami saying, congratulations, you, you know, you were the wild card. Give us your information. We're going to book a flight.
it's a done deal, you know? So yeah, that's what happened there. And we could talk about all of what happened at KC and stuff. That'd probably be enough to, to fill another, uh, another po- podcast, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of like the story. And, um, that that's what happened with the wild card stuff. So, uh, shout outs to Paul. He's killing it now. Unfortunately, that was the only year they ever did wild card, which is annoying because now that we actually have competitive people all across the country, they are dwindling the numbers. We had three the first year, two, two, two. This year, it's only one. It's like, no, no, you should be adding Americans, not removing them, you know, but it's kind of here we are now, right? Yeah, I think a lot of us would uh, really appreciate and let's include Europe too, and you know all the other regions in the world that don't have the same opportunity as the Japanese do to qualify for KAC. Like, even if you only award you know two or three spots or four spots or whatever for the actual finals, I think it would be a really good thing to do to have semifinals for all the other regions because it feels like you've got a lot more to play for, and that would really I think step up a lot of people's engagement with particularly like KAC qualifying periods, because even if they're a serious underdog to ever qualify for the final event, feeling like you can get into the semifinals is something that's, you know, something that's a really big opportunity. And that's a lot to play for on its own. So I think that there definitely is, there definitely is a lot of room to improve with the, you know, the way the the whole tournament is set up. But um, I want to go back to, that story as well you know that's a really amazing story despite the hurt feelings and the emotions and you know the what went on as far as communication goes just the you know it really came down to the wire like that's very exciting oh yeah even after the event ended i it didn't update my score immediately i I had you know essentially no idea what was going to happen yeah like that's that you're just sweating for what feels like forever, I'm sure. Um, but shout outs to Paul. And if anything, I think he got a little revenge on you for getting the 18 PFC lamp. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He sure did. <laughs> and that's a, an amazing achievement. Do, do three people have that lamp or is it just him and Chris? We're going to ignore the fact that they keep on adding new songs because um, I don't think it's fair to take away somebody's PFC folder. But yeah, Chris was first. Magden was second. Paul is third. So there are three people with it. They at least had it at one point in time. Right. Um, Magden doesn't have it because he hasn't played since Possession and Prey were added, but you know he'd get them within a handful of tries. Paul has it. Yeah. And that, that's, that's it right now. And you're pretty close too, right? Yeah. I have uh, four songs left. I think I'm the closest right now. Uh, I was the closest before Paul. Um, I think Brosoni has five left, five or six. Fifems has five left. Kevin has five left. Uh, I have four. And between all of us, um, Brosoni has Dead End, but doesn't have Endymion. I don't think he has Pluto the first. Um, you know, Kevbo has dead end, but he doesn't have a Demi on. You know, there's just a lot of trading here and there. Um, Fefems has over the period, but he doesn't have max period. You know, just like some weird stuff here and there. Um, 
Neutrino is another one of those awful ones, but yeah, that, that's kind of like where we're at. Sounds like pretty normal variation for folder lamps in general. It's, yeah, it, there's the final five. It's going to be the same for everybody, which is going to be over the period expert, Endymion expert, Neutrino challenge, Nine challenge, Dead End challenge. Uh, those are the, the final five. I don't care who you are. Those are the last five, except for Paul. Sorry. Paul got like blew my mind as like his second to last as well as Paranoia Revolution, which should be within like people's first five eight teams. But he really doesn't do slowdowns. Bravo on him for overcoming that because he obviously can do them now. But I just remember him having so much trouble on Paranoia Revolution Expert. And I'm like, dude, it's like... 10 16th notes you know how could you possibly not be able to do that he's like you don't get it i don't do slowdowns i'm like but i mean what do you mean you don't do slowdowns like he just really didn't do them that was uh you know everyone has their weaknesses i guess and that's his but generally speaking it's going to be those final five and usually the gatekeeper for six and seven is going to be max period and um pluto the first so you usually knock those two out first and then you're down to the final five and then um from there it's just kind of like some people can do one or the other but doing all five is just really that's the challenge right and i remember seeing him tweet after the lamp saying like i am so fucking burnt out and i even though i have no idea what that's like you know the 18 pfc grind it's still like i can understand you know even just from hearing you talk about it and with the context of what those charts are like, it's so hard to clutch a PFC. Like maybe you can get consistently high EX, but there's something special about clutching out the PFC. And that's why these lamps are so rewarding. You know, when I got my 14 lamp, it felt like fucking amazing. And I'm close on the 15 lamp. And that's probably going to feel amazing too, you know, once I get that one. You, you know, I can actually tell you about the 18s in particular. The reason why those five songs I mentioned usually end up being everyone's last. And you said, like, why it's so difficult to clutch that PSC. And the reason why is because each of these songs does not have one hard part. A lot of the other 18s will have a single hard part. So if you get it, you win. But with these 18s, there's generally three hard parts. I don't know. It's like the magic number Konami goes for. But there's three hard parts. And if you're lucky, you can get one of them. If you're really good, you can get two of them. But doing all three in a single run is just so much to ask of a player. So, for example, in Neutrino, yeah, you have the whole song, right? But the three is going to be you've got that 24th drill at 205. Then you've got the 24th staircase. And then, of course, you have the very end where you've got the 16th Scooby into the 32nd. I have gotten the drill and the staircase only to mess up the very end. I've gotten the drill, I messed up the staircase, and I got the very end. I've missed the drill, gotten the stair, and gotten the end. I have done everything except all three of them in a single run. In Dead End, you've got, on shuffle, there's a foot switch into a jump. On normal chart, it's always a bracket. So in that case, normal, left, right, or mirror is actually easier. But on shuffle, you have a foot switch into a jump, which is really, 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 really hard to do <laughs> consistently. Um, and if you get that, then you have the jackhammer jumps, which there's two of. So if you get the foot switch, 
and you get the jackhammer jump, well, now you got to get the second jackhammer jump. If you get the foot switch and miss the first jump, you get the second. You know what I mean? Just doing all three in a single run. All of these charts usually have three kill points, and that's why they're so hard. I'm not going to say it's luck, but especially when you get the first two, when you go into that third one, you're like, all I got to do is get this, and I win. And that pressure makes you choke every time. Keeping your cool and just being like, no, 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 we got this. And the worst thing about it is, is that dead end, I have actually gotten all three four times now. I have gotten all three. And I just, afterwards, I choke and get an easy great that I have never gotten in my life. I got a great after the ending run in dead end. I was four steps from the end of the, from the, from, like, I had a gold up until, like, the jump before, before the end of the song. Um, I got a freeze, I got a great on the stop after you do all the jackhammer jumps. You know, it's just choking. It's just choking. And uh, I've played the song, you know, probably a thousand times. Never got a great on those steps in my life. Just a quarter. Minute. And that's, that's what makes it so hard. Yeah, that can be applied to so many other types of charts you know, for that, that type of experience will happen for you on a song like Diggers or for one of the last five 18s. But for a lot of us, that'll happen on, you know, 14s like Max Period. That one was probably the one I had to play the most times. Oh, the ending is awful. <laughs> yeah, just the the ending. And like, I had to figure out a sudden plus strat that got me through the paranoia part. And it was like a very tight window and just like that one took forever. And like, when I finally got it, I was just like, I'm never going to expect myself to PFC this again. If I do, that's great. But now I'm glad I don't have to worry about that anymore because now I can just focus on getting high EX and, you know, treating, I think it's, I think it's healthy too to look at when you're trying to PFC things for a lamp. And when you're trying to get a really good, um, like marvelous attack score to look at those two things differently. Absolutely. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to mention, just kind of rewinding this a little bit to the KAC thing, was, um, you know, I, I, it kind of goes without saying that KAC is not like a, it's not an illegitimate tournament, don't get me wrong, but it's not about the competition. It's a spectacle. And, um, it, you know, it's at the, the Japanese arcade, arcade expo, and they're there to show off their games to get potential investors and buyers to buy their stuff. They hold concerts, they have tournaments, they do this and the other to draw large crowds to show off the game, right? And so for them, it's now that the game is being sold in the US, they'll fly out an American or two just so they can say, look, we're international. And I really think it's nothing more than that. It has nothing to do with fair competition, with, um, with uh, promoting uh, you know, competition within the community. I really don't think that that's really on their radar, unfortunately. Um, if, you know, having lived in Japan, I can tell you that foreigners um, in Japan are, they're like a, an accessory. They're, they're literally the token foreigner. It's, you'll see businesses, you watch ads on TV. It should be all Japanese people, right? But they'll always have just a random foreigner in the commercial to make their product legitimate. Like, oh, look, 
we have Americans, so you know that this is a, a you know, a good item because they use it. You know what I mean? It's like they, they use us as a staple just to sell a, a product. Um, and I really think it's it's really no different with KAC where, you know, hey, look, here's an American and and, you know, we sell our game overseas as well. We're we're a big deal. And unfortunately, I feel like it kind of backfired for them because then, I mean, even before America came, uh, FFMs from Korea was winning every KAZ. And then you bring Chris and Jeff, and then you've got them three dominating and Japan just kind of being left in the dark. And, um, you know, Brasoni's been killing it lately. So he, he's earned his spot on the, on the, um, on the pedestal, but, uh, yeah, you know, Japan really didn't have many of that star players on the on the 18s and 19s. Because of that, they started doing the regionals to give Japanese players more of an incentive to play and, you know, be more competitive. And now they've got less Americans and more Japanese players. Like, here's an East, here's a West, here's a bonus player. One American, one Korean. Um, and good for them for kind of inspiring the Japanese players to play more. But on the other hand, they're really making it hard for American players to continue caring when it's it's less about us and more about them. And I don't really see Konami doing anything about that because like I said, us being there is is really just uh is for show. I, I personally believe that they just want one guy to show up to be like, hey, look, we've got Americans too, but they don't want the the focus to be on us. You know, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of people share that same impression, and it kind of makes sense from a business perspective that they can check the box and say, you know, oh, we're we're international. We have technically have people from these other regions, and you know, it fulfills whatever objective there is on the business side. It, it's hard to override that, especially with a you know. I would imagine that the culture within the company in general is pretty rigid in that it would be very progressive for them to go the other way and then say, look, we want the world's best players. We want this to be a competitive tournament and let's change things up so we can make that happen. Um, so like, I, I think that's where a lot of people's despair comes from is the fact that it doesn't really seem like there's a way out, but that's where tournaments like extra exclusive come in. And, you know, where it kind of looks to fill in that gap. Um, so for those that don't know, like, extra exclusive, what is it exactly? And why why has it become a thing alongside the Konami Arcade Championship? We went out to KAC and, uh, you know, Paul was like, well, I was already planning on going anyways. So even though he didn't qualify he went and bought a flight and was like, I'm going to go to Japan. And then some other people, uh, some other people I know that um, like Roger Clark went, uh, I think, I don't remember who else went the first year. Uh, Matt Palco went. Um, I know that Steve, uh, name is in Korean, Steve. And some other Bimani style people went uh, to Japan that first year. And, the, everyone hated the rules for KAC and I was just like, Hey, you know, if we've got a bunch of players going and we're all going to be like in the same building, if you're having like all the best players in the world in the same room at the same time to watch some shitty tournament, why don't we just have a real tournament? 
And everyone's like, dude, that would be so awesome. Cause we had like a chat for people going to Japan. And um, I was like, dude, we should totally do it. And everyone kept saying, we should totally do something like that. And we all kind of hypothesized about where it should happen and, you know, how it should be ran. And so we all kind of like as a group decided everything about the event. And since I was the one who could speak Japanese, I contacted the um, uh, Lily, the, uh, the guy who mods the pads and works at uh, Eternal Tower. As I had met him, the I'm getting my timelines mixed up. I did not do extra exclusive the first year of KAC. I did it the second year. Um, <laughs> yes, the first year I didn't. I didn't run some tournament at the same time I was competing in KAC. That was the next year, and then like Adam Styles came, Evil Dave came, everybody came to Japan. Um, that's when I said we should have a tournament in Japan. That's a real one. That's better. And I was going to be there and I could enter, even though I wasn't KC. Paul could enter, you know, like everyone would be able to enter. And so we were all just like talking about how great it would be like be. And since the previous year after KC, we went to um, Tri Tower, played on their super modded pads. I think that was the time I did Boss Rush Supernova 2, you know, and all this, that and the other. So I was already, you know, I'd already been friendly with the guy. I said, hey, we want to run a tournament. And he goes, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll help you out. So I was just kind of like the middleman because I spoke Japanese and I could communicate with him. But um, somehow, just really nobody else did anything. And I wasn't planning on being the guy to run the tournament. It was like a group decision of let's run this tournament. Let's make this happen. And I guess because I was the guy doing the communicating, I ended up being the guy running it, you know? So I didn't necessarily, I wasn't, it's not like it started off as my tournament, but it ended up becoming my tournament just because nobody else really took any responsibility for it. So the first year was a pretty big, not a mess, but it was not very well planned. Um, but it still was a hit. It was huge and everybody loved it. And so then the next year for Super, we started to get a lot of things uh, straight. I, you know, had a doubles division, you know, we, we did a lot more and, um, Super was way, way bigger. We rented our own floor. Um, we had, uh, you know, the dedicated machine. Fifems was able to enter the second year. He did not enter the first year because he didn't really know much about it, didn't think it would be a big deal. But I guess after he saw the first one, the next year he was like, yeah, I'm entering. And that, you know, that was just, just more competitive. First year we had one world record throughout the event. It was the final song, the final match which was Chris versus, I want to say, Brosoni on um, Healing Division Challenge. And Chris got something like seven perfects uh, PFC on the final song of the final match. So talk about an epic, you know, finish world record on an 18. It was really epic having that world record as the final song. But man, the second year, I think there was over 10 new world records set throughout the the event i mean the big the most famous one is the endymion challenge by Fefems, which i think is still the world record on that you know and that wasn't even that was a warm-up <laughs> that wasn't even the uh the actual match um one of the interesting rules i had it was a hit or miss but thanks to this rule we um we had that wonderful uh, match, but um, the rule we did was that you got 
one warm-up song up uh, like from the top 16 everybody gets one warm-up song and then from um from top eight you got two warm-up songs top eight or top four you got two warm-up songs and the way we did it was we did the card draw and i made the card draw for the top four um five out of seven like first to five wins i think and so each player got to veto one song and so what we did was the songs they vetoed were their warm-ups does that make sense oh, so that you don't, yeah. you don't get to pick your warm-up it's whatever showed up in the card draw that you veto was the warm-up and so the song was endymion challenge and that was his warm-up that was his warm-up song for the match <laughs> so um yeah the rule was kind of hit or miss, uh, but I, I, I personally liked it. The competition at Super Extra Exclusive is beyond, you know, anything that we had seen today. Definitely more than anything you'll ever see at a KEC. So um, I think that really built up its reputation to what it is now. It befits the name, too, with, you know, exclusive competition and exclusive results. Um, and also, I think it's kind of interesting, especially after having this conversation that one of the rules was that you played the songs you vetoed as your warm-ups because it it's kind of fitting for you because you're then still having to play the songs you didn't want to play but at least they're not they don't matter you know for the result of that match but you're still going to be forced to play what you didn't want to and i think that's really interesting it's a really interesting like perspective to have on like songs that you don't want to play and putting that mentality then onto the competitors who may have never ever do that sort of thing without that rule. Yeah. It's kind of like when you do the card draw, it's, it's instead of like, these are the list of songs you might play. It's, this is the list of songs you will play. It's just now you get to pick which ones count and which ones don't, you know? Yeah. I, I remember my card draw, I think against Dalton for the first match of tier eight at Raj the card draw for that match was like Prana Challenge, Another Phase Challenge, Trip Machine Phoenix Challenge, Antimatter Expert, and uh, Be a Hero Expert. And we vetoed Another Phase Challenge and Antimatter. So those would have been our warm up song under that format. And that would have been pretty wild. Yeah. So you can see why it's hit or miss, but. I didn't really care too much about hit or miss. You know, with U.S. tournaments, there's so much input and everybody has their way. They like to do things. And I thought, you know what? Well, I'm not in the U.S. I'm in Japan. This is the only event you can come to where you get to have players from all around the world. I'm just going to kind of do it my way. And, you know, for all I know, I might come up with something cool that people like. I might come up with something people hate. And, you know, we can just kind of go from there. But in the U.S., it's like, well, if people don't like the way your tournament rules are, they just won't go. And you don't want to have an unpopular event. So you're going to kind of cater the rules to be kind of like what the players want to see, you know, or what people are comfortable with. But when I had my event, it's like people are going to show up regardless. So let's kind of get creative with it, which may have been a good or a bad executive decision. But, um, you know. Nobody can complain because I asked for everybody's input when I was uh, planning the event and nobody responded. So I just kind of uh, 
it's like, all right, well, <laughs> I gave you all the chance for input, and now I'm doing it my way. So right, and I honestly, regardless of whether or not you like or don't like that type of role, I think it's interesting that it existed in the first place, and I love the fact that we're giving it a try. You know, it's kind of the same thing with the um, with some of the charts that that Konami has come out with for DDR that are controversial, in that a lot of people are like what is this or like this is bad and you know it might be true but it's good that you keep testing where the line is of what's acceptable and what isn't because otherwise you don't really know where it is for the record since um prey challenge is like the hot topic of the month or of last month rather i like i said i i don't take any charts and i actually like prey challenge physically I think doing it is good. It's really difficult in a way that pretty much no other chart is. And I think it's important to have that kind of stuff in the game. My only problem with it is I don't think Prey was the right song to do it to. I think that if they had like a Black Rose Garden song, like if they finally wanted to write a new rock song that's uh, 250, sorry, no, 210 BPM or something like that, then that would be very fitting, like a heavy guitar or something like that. But you took a song like Prey. You announced that there's going to be a challenge. Everyone is going to think, well, it's an 18 on Expert. So obviously the challenge is a 19. And people started thinking of like these crazy rhythms they could come up with. I mean, they could just make it pivot stream. You know, they could do all this stuff. It's going to be wild. Only to find out that it's also an 18. And you're like, what? Is this going to be a, a shock arrow special? Like, what is this going to be? And then it's what we got. It's not so much that the chart is bad, but I think that it's it goes without saying that players were expecting anything but that. And when you've got a game like Pump It Up, where you can have unlimited charts per song, hey, you know, here's a joke chart, or here's a whatever, here's a, a gimmick chart. It's cool because, you know what? They could always add another one. There's always, you know, there could always be more charts. But with DDR, it's like that was the single challenge slot, and it has been used for that chart. And I think that that's really disappointing to a lot of players who were kind of hoping that they'd have something more. So I think Prey Challenge is a perfectly good chart in terms of the arrows and the BPM. But I just don't think the song asked for that chart, and I think it was a waste of, you know, what they could have otherwise done with it that i think is a really good take and i think it does sum up even my own you know disappointment with what the chart was because i wanted it to be like a 19 where it's doing all this like you know you know all this like 210 16th note stuff and there are no 16th notes and that i i agree that it would be better flavor and it would make more sense in a you know, in a rock song or in something that's a little bit more like eighth note driven. There's joke images that even say like, pray air special. And it's like, ha ha ha, that's funny. But no, if literally they had just called it pray air special, and it was a separate song, you know, just with the, a different banner. So it didn't take up the challenge slot for the normal song. Then I really don't think there'd be any complaints. But for them to be like, no, this is it. This is the challenge chart. It's like, well, that's it. That's what we get. All right. Oh, well. You know, and that's, I think it's really disappointing when you're hoping for something and you get something else, especially in a game like DDR where there's no room for here's more charts. It's that, that is it. And that's what you're getting, you know?
Yeah, it feels like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Is there going to be another extra exclusive this year? Okay, so it's complicated. Um, and I, I don't want to go into it yet uh, because we're going to be making an announcement for something really, really, really soon. So I understand I could probably be using this as an opportunity for a, sh- a shameless self-plug, but actually um, I want to hold off on saying anything because we're still trying to uh, weed some things, figure some things out right now. And I'd hate to be on the record saying something for, you know, something that isn't what I'm going to say. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's understandable. So something's on the horizon, just can't say what. Yes, exactly. There's not a whole lot of content, it seems, for like your physical conditioning as it pertains to like the highest difficulties in DDR. And um, some people know this who follow me on social, but I injured myself about two or three weeks before Raj, and I was really nervous that I was going to be out, you know, of commission or, you know, severely impacted. Thankfully, I was not. But around that time, I was playing a ton of 18s just out of the blue just to get my clear lamp and to, you know, play some charts that I just liked and wanted to get better at. And I think part of my shoulder or slash upper back injury was the fact that I was playing too hard, too fast. I wasn't actually like giving my body the warm up and the, you know, what it needed to stand up to the abuse of songs like that. You have a lot of experience grinding 18s. You know, how did you get to that point without hurting yourself? And how did you condition your body to where you could play 18s just like most other competitive players can play 14s and 15s all day. This is something that Leon, Steven, David, basically all of Team Florida can can attest to, and uh, I don't really have a scientific explanation for it. Um, I don't get tired. I and <laughs> <laughs> must be nice. <laughs> well, and, and it's not that you, I mean, you might see me, you know, obviously if I played like an in the groove, you know, 15 or something that, you know, I, I'd probably fail with, you know, so I, I definitely do have stamina issues just like anybody else. But um, there's something, it's kind of a philosophy that I use in every aspect of my life, every aspect of my life, not just dance games. And I, it's, I'm not going to say it's good. It could be dangerous, but um <laughs> dangerous advice, but, uh, I think it applies to a lot of things. And, um, we'll start off by saying, do you, do you know about the book called the secret? Yes. I'm aware of it. I've never read it, but, (laughs) but, uh, my, my mom read it when I was growing up and she, she said, you know, if you can see it in your head and you can imagine it, then it can become reality. And, um, I, I don't believe that personally, but what I do believe is something similar. And what that is, is that, the world that we see is, it's all processed, you know, through our minds. I mean, literally, yeah, your eyes, you know, take in the lights and your ears take in the sound, but ultimately it gets processed by your brain and, you know, it tells you what you're seeing and what you're hearing, right? Which means if, if there's any hiccups there or you're delusional, I mean, you might see or hear things that aren't actually there, right? And because of that, I think that we are, we are in control more of our world then, then we think, you know, cause if you can convince your brain into thinking one thing, it can truly become your reality, whether or not it really is. And the reason why this is relevant to dance games is if 
you're beginning to get tired or you think a song is difficult, then it is difficult and you are tired. But if you can just trick yourself into thinking, no, I'm actually not tired. This is just my body telling me or my mind telling me I'm tired and therefore I'm giving in to the pains of being tired, then it's going to be a lot more difficult and a lot more tiring than it needs to be. So I get tired just like everybody else, but I tell them, I tell myself, I'm not tired. I'm good. I'm just going to keep going. Kind of bite the bullet and, you know, figure it out because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, or else I'm not going to get the score I want, right? So, and that's, that's kind of how I get my, uh, you know, unlimited stamina is I think that getting tired is more mental than it is physical. And I think that players are more capable of doing uh, than what they think. You know, they think this is my limit. They think I can't do this. It's too hard. And they just start throwing in the towel. You know, I used to do uh, P90X. I used to work out a lot. Um, and, you know, they say that once you start getting tired and you can't do any more, that's when you need to push because that's where the results come. It's not the first 20 reps. It's those last five reps, you know. And so with a dance game, people start getting tired and they're like, Ugh, yeah, no, I'm done for the day. I'm going to head home. It's like, no, 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 no. Now, your entire session up until now didn't matter. Now that you're tired, now your session is about to start. And um, I think that that's a really valuable mind mindset for improving. It's also a great way to get yourself hurt. So like I said, it's not, you know, for everybody. But that's kind of like my mantra is uh, just it's in your head. Right. Yeah, I think that there definitely is a balance of, you know, telling yourself like, look, come on, let's push. We can get through this and like, you know, injury or, you know, passing out, you know, things like that. But assuming that we're not assuming that you're, you know, you're not like actively doing something that would hurt yourself or if you're not like, you know, barring any form issues or whatever, I think that there is a lot to be gained by, you know, to training your mind stamina you're training your the stamina of your mind rather than the body because one kind of follows the other and i i definitely got that impression when i was um, when i was playing in the groove stamina some years ago and i was pushing into like 16s and 17s where i felt like i they felt so nebulous they felt like something that i just was so far away and i couldn't accomplish it but then like what i realized as i kept playing more and as I started to pass more and more of them. It was, it really was a lot of a mental game to like, as I got tired to just keep going and to figure out like how to, it's not that you don't, I don't get tired. I do. How can I play well despite being tired or despite my legs hurting? And that's, that I think is actually what happens rather than this nebulous perspective of like oh the best players they never get tired they have infinite energy i don't really think that's true i think it's just you learn how to adjust your mind so that even when you are feeling like pain or if you are you know f facing adversity that you still work through it a perfect example is you know this was a two-hour drive uh, to get where i'm at and if i'm just driving you know kind of focusing on the road listening to the radio or whatever two hours is a pretty long time but since we've been chatting the whole time, I, I've arrived before we even got to talk about half the things I wanted to talk about. And that really can be applied to 
any sort of passage of time, especially when it comes to like a stamina song and, and in the groove. I remember I played like a, a 30 minute long mega mix back when I used to have my machine and um, they used to be so hard and, and so tiring. Cause like, Oh, when is this going to end? And um, I forgot who was with me, but I was playing one of these songs and just, I was getting so tired that I just decided to start having a conversation with the guy that was uh, in the room with me. I really, I really don't, I apologize to whoever it was. I don't remember who was in the room. <laughs> I might've been Leon for all I know it could have been at Mute's house. I just know that I was playing in the groove and I was chatting with the guy that was in the room with me. And we ended up just talking for the, uh, the entire 24 minutes remaining of the song. And um, you'd think that talking while playing will make you more tired. And well, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Using your lungs is uh, definitely going to tire you out. But the fact that I was able to hold a real conversation and, and just kind of get my mind off of the game, I didn't even notice that, you know, five minutes had already passed. Because when you're playing by yourself, especially on In the Groove, you're looking at your percent at the top of the screen. Ugh, I'm at 24%. And every 10 errors you hit, your percentage goes up by, you know, 0.1. You're looking at the bar at the top of the screen, seeing how much of the song is remaining. And you're just like, I am nowhere near being done, right? So you're just going to start getting more tired. But if you're talking and you're just kind of hanging out, let your, let your legs do all the work and your head can kind of be somewhere else. And before you know it, the song is over. And when you do stuff like this, you realize it was never a physical issue to begin with because your legs were able to do it. Your lungs were able to do it. It was a mental thing. You were mentally getting exhausted. I know that you'll play about to pick an 18 and you're like, this is going to be so, this is going to be so hard. This is going to be so tiring that you're setting yourself up for failure because you haven't even picked the song yet. And you're already talking about getting tired. You got to change your mindset. It's got to be, no, 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 this, this, this is free. And it's kind of like a fake it or make it. And it also really kind of goes back to that whole Florida community personality where it's just like a lot of shit talking. It's another thing we do is we often downplay everything, like downplay accomplishments, downplay scores. You know, if somebody gets a, a really good score, like, what was it? One thing that we have is if, uh, if you get a score that can be recalced as a non-PFC, it's not a PFC. So like if you have a... Uh, like a 998, because I had a 998 PFC on Ace for Aces Challenge, because it was 103 perfects PFC. And Leon was like, you didn't PFC that. I was like, I have the gold lamp. He goes, yeah, but that, that's not even 999. It's a 998. I'm like, it's still a PFC. He goes, no, that, that, that doesn't count. If you can recalc it as like two greats and change, then it's not a real PFC. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and so we started doing stuff like that. And, um, really that i feel like that kind of just downplaying just like oh that's not impressive it's not even a big deal like he'll say something like hey uh, did you see that score that kevbo just got i'm like who he goes kevbo i'm just like who's that <laughs> you know <laughs> just kind of like oh, are you guys talk about somebody important you know just kind of like downplaying you know the the, the importantness of stuff can also help your mind kind of get over the challenge that some of the boss songs present like you know Instead of being like, oh, God, the ending run of Pluto Relinquish is so hard, just be like, no, this shit's free. And just pick the song, be like, not even a big deal. You know, and you pick it. And when you get to the ending, if you start thinking, oh, God, here it comes, then you're not going to get it. But if you can convince yourself, maybe be delusional about it and just be like, it's actually not that hard. I feel like it won't actually be that hard. 
you really just kind of got to get over the mental challenge that these songs give you and kind of just kind of downplay them, make them like they're not even a big deal. And they will eventually not become a big deal. This, this applies especially, I think, to me personally, because like, as I've gotten to know myself as a competitive, you know, DDR player, and I've, and this is kind of true, even from like when I played in the groove tournaments a lot, songs like that are on the easier side of the spectrum have definitely been like my forte to where like I can time them well, I can, you know, I can be consistent at them. And like, I don't, and I have this level of comfort. Um, but then when it comes to like the songs at the very tippy top of the game, you know, there are some that stand out as ones that I just like or ones that just kind of suit my taste and my talents and I can be good at them. But as a whole, I've been kind of nervous and just, you know, haven't really fully embraced them as much as I could. That's something that I'm changing, you know, going into you know, now that I've dedicated myself a lot to DDR and kind of am comfortable with the game in general to where I'm like, okay, now where's my next like big leap in skill? And it's definitely with harder songs. And one thing that I think would definitely help me a lot, you know, is to look at, and when I've gotten good scores on hard songs, this is, this is where my mind has been is exactly what you said about how like, this is, like ignore the fact that this is an 18 or a 17 or that this is a hard part or like whatever it feels like on paper. It's just another song. It's just another chart. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what a great example of this is? I have a, I have a wonderful example of this. And that's First Time Challenge. When it came out on KAC, it was a 17. You remember that? Uh, yeah, I do remember it being a 17. Yeah, it used to be a 17. I got it down to something really good, like 16 perfects PFC. Um, because I was like, oh, it's kind of like a mini max, uh, period, you know, you got the just 24th, um, you know, uh, candle run at the end that really doesn't go to anything and is not suggested by the music at all. You've got, um, you know, but it, it's like 20 BPM or 40 BPM if you do the math uh, slower. And, um, uh, you know, I thought it was really fun. And um, my friend David as well, he's not known for PFCing 18s left and right at all. And he PFC'd that. And I was like, oh, that's really good. He's like, yeah, it's a fun chart. I wanted to get it. So, um, you know, people were able to PFC it. And I've noticed that ever since it got re-rated to an 18, people have not been putting up as good of scores on them. David is like, I have no idea how I PFC'd that. I can't do it at all. I am getting nowhere near teens on it anymore, even though I pretty easily did it during the KAC qualifying. And I think just because they re-rated it to an 18, it's become harder. Like, you now pick it and you're like, this is an 18. And it just makes it that much harder to score on, despite the fact that nothing in the chart has changed at all. It's weird, right? You know, you change the label because that's basically what happened is you change the label of this is a, you know, song that's N minus two from max difficulty to N minus one. And all of a sudden your perspective changes, even though it's the same content. Yeah. I, one may, maybe way of looking at it is like if, uh, say, I don't know, this doesn't really relate to my job exactly, but like say it's something at work you've been doing it for the past 20 years. You do it the same way every time. And it's just kind of like, yeah, um, this is how we do it. 
And then one day somebody gets hurt doing it, or maybe they, they put up a new sign that says caution, very dangerous. And you've been doing this the whole time and you never thought twice about it. But now that you know that there's a risk associated with it, or now there's a sign saying to be careful, all of a sudden you, you can't do it the same way you were doing before. You're exercising more caution or thinking about more things, even though nothing has actually changed, just a detail has changed. And now that changes how, how you approach it, you know? I feel like the levels, you know, people say what's irrelevant, whatever Konami rates it. It's like, I no, I think that like, it is pretty relevant. And, um, you know, just by changing a number, it can completely change the way that you might approach a song. Right. And then the onus is on you as the player to then take that information and it can either, you can either be, use it to be helpful or it can either, you know, it can be helpful or it can hurt you. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that one of the things that helps me, you know, whether an experience is painful or whether it's joyous or whatever, is to look at it from a perspective of no matter whether this is objectively good or bad, how can this help me? Like, what, what can I get out of it? Because ultimately, that's what you're left with at the end of the day. That That's something that I need to carry with me going into, you know, this next year of play is that like these are just charts like these are just these are just arrows that i need to hit just the same as you know as the other charts you know maybe there are more of them maybe it's more difficult but it's not unobtainable you know look at all these other people that have achieved that level why can't i do it too you know there's um there's a famous line i will never forget i've told it to many people and they think it's the funniest thing they've ever heard but um, so I used to play pop and music competitively. And uh, when I lived in Japan, um, I ended up meeting one of my idols at the time. His name was Robo. If you've ever seen any pop and music video, the most, pop, the most famous video of all time is probably a video of a, a Japanese guy in glasses playing classic four, which is um, just a, a, like a classical melody or medley. And um, on an old pop machine and the video was labeled like it was from e-bombs world or something like that you know crazy asian game faster you know whatever and um <laughs> yeah i know the type yeah the pop and music equivalent of that video of pump it up at some big tournament where a guy's playing beethoven virus on double and it says like crazy asian ddr or whatever even though it's not ddr um it's the pop and music equivalent of that video but anyways um yeah, Robo, uh, you know, continued to be very competitive uh, at pop music. He was really good. And when I was living in Japan, I finally got to meet him. It was like meeting my idol. And uh, he was one of the first players to adopt uh, the technique called Anmitsu. And uh, what Anmitsu is, is it's cheesing uh, difficult patterns in a song by converting them into chords in order to keep your combo going. Um especially for getting clears, but also pop and music has had lamps since way, way before DDR did. Um, you would get like, a, in depending on the, the version, they, the icon would change. In pop and music adventure, it was a banana. In other games, it's a crown. But like you would get a single crown for getting a pass. You would get a double crown for getting a full combo. And you'd get a triple uh, crown for getting a perfect combo. So pretty much every song you would just have a crown on, which is, I can pass it. But if you wanted a double 
crown or a double banana, <laughs> you would go for a full combo. So it was important for players to be able to combo stuff because when you get to the hardest stuff in the game, nobody's getting a perfect combo. That's impossible. But getting a full combo is doable if you cheat by, you know, if you have a drum wall on your left hand, which is like, you know, left, right, left, right, left, right, over and over at a really fast BPM while you're doing other stuff with your right hand, it's a lot easier to instead of rolling your hand back and forth by going but a bit a just to hit it as two notes simultaneously and just go way way easier and you can just combo through it doing that so um he used to do a thing called anmitsu and there was a song back then called trauma punk and it had just like crazy stupid jackhammer scales while you were doing other stuff and people always just kind of like bs'd it to get through and he had a full combo marker on it I said, wait, how the hell did you full combo with this? He's like, oh, would you like me to show you? I'm like, uh, yeah. So he picks it and he full combos it right in front of me. And the hard part comes up and I just see him where it should be like, you know, some crazy rhythm like that. He's just like, just doing chords using his elbows and like, you know, just doing this crazy stuff. And the whole thing got converted into a, into crazy chords. And I was like, that is ridiculous like how do how do you do that and he's his english was not very good and i didn't really speak japanese at the time so i can't tell if this is a mistranslation um of just like his english not being that great or if he was just trying to like troll me but when i said how do you do that he's like looks up and he's looking for the words and he goes um if you uh, just hit each button as many times as it says on the screen, when they reach the bottom of the screen, in time with the music, you can full combo it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, uh, yep. Thanks, Sensei. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's always kind of stuck with me because it's, it's true. All you got to do is hit them. That's You just hit it when it reaches the top. It's such a simple concept. And sometimes I feel like we really make this to be a lot harder or a lot complicated than it really is. But sometimes just some simple advice like that might be might be all it really takes to get your head in the right place. You know what? I just, I just got to hit the arrows, you know? And um, kind of like how I said with first time, when they increased the difficulty, people started getting worse scores. And I think sometimes songs being misrated can help us get better. Um, I think Endymion Challenge is a perfect example. I think all of us agree that it should be a 20. Um, but it's not. It's a 19. And so when I know there's, when I say all of us, there's like all of 10 people in the U.S. who probably even play Endymion to raise their score, you know what I mean? For like to do anything with the song, but right, probably yeah. less than 10 because there are other capable people who just don't want to play Endymion, which is understandable. But when you're trying to raise your score on it and you compare it to all the other 19s, it's going to be a hundred K lower than everybody else. But then you look at the world record and it's like a nine, eight, six or a nine, eight, seven. And bro Sony has like a nine, eight, one. And some other players have like a nine, seven, something, which is, kind of like where the world record is for Valkyrie. You know, it was a 980 for a pretty long time, then 985, you know. So it's not too far off from Endymion. Of course, Valkyrie has 400 steps. 
So every time you get a great or a miss, there goes, you know, 20K. Um, whereas in Vimeon, it's hard to score on because it's impossible. You know, two different reasons why the scores are low. But the top scores are not too far from each other in the 19. So I think by seeing your own score being so much lower than the rest of the 19s really makes you want to improve on it because it's like, I want all my 19s to be at this level, but this one, my score is so much worse. So I just need to work on it. And that'll make you a better player. Whereas if it was a 20 and it was in its own folder, you would just write it off as, well, yeah, it's a 20. Of course my score is not going to be good on it, you know? And you start to come up with excuses for why you don't need to work on it just because of which folder it's in. So sometimes having things misrated like first time, uh, bumping up the rating will make you worse at the song. But then I feel like in, in Demion's case, it might actually make you better at the song because you now feel obligated. I know a lot of people going through like Life 4 probably really, really feel that as they're going through all the different folders that they wouldn't normally be doing. Yep. And that speaks to me personally as well. I think that, you know, outside of just going for the lamps on your own, having the requirements be what they are to where it says, so there are exceptions, I believe, for the lower ranks that you can use at your discretion. But I think for, I'm not sure where they draw the line, but somewhere around Cobol or Amethyst, it says all songs must be X. I think the only exception is Endymion for like Amethyst and up. Other than that, all songs must be X. So there's, you know, there are no excuses. There's no, you know, writing things off. You know, Poochie has to be, 980k just the same as you know life is beautiful and i think that although it's painful you know in the same way that the situation you described is with the 19s and how endymion is you know a league above the other 19s the fact that it is a 19 means that it feels more approachable in a way you know because it's it's the same group yeah and um i actually have a, a theory and I'd like to go ahead and put this on the record um, because uh, when my theory is proven correct a year or two or three from now, you can go back to this podcast and say, well, uh, he called it. And so here's my theory. Is, um, my theory is that Endymion will be re-rated to a 20. I have no doubt in my mind that they will re-rate the song to a 20. I think they grossly misunderestimated the di uh, difficulty when they released it, which this would not be the first time they've done this. Um, when X2 came out and they introduced the first 19 Valkyrie Dimension, Valkyrie was in 19 on uh, single and double, and that was the only 19. It was, you know, the, the new boss song. And um, in X3, they re-rated Possession Challenge Double to a 19 as well. Um, it was not intended to be a 19, but when they saw the clear rates and the scores, they re-rated Possession to a 19. Um, I think that when Konami makes charts, I don't know about this, but I, I think that when they make charts, that they are they pick the difficulty first. I know that this is actually something they do in Pump It Up, because I did, you know, I worked on Pump It Up Infinity, um, so I've worked with Andamiro on a Pump It Up game. But when they make charts, they actually decide the difficulty First, which is why you often end up with a lot of things that are misrated, because it's this song needs to be an 18. It needs to have a 16, and it needs to have a um, it needs to have a, a basic chart that's like a 12 or whatever. And they kind of make the chart to the song 
aiming for that difficulty. And sometimes they hit the mark, sometimes they don't. I don't know if this is how they do it at Konami, but it really feels like it. So they probably just were told, you need to make this an 18, you need to make this a 19, and that's kind of the charts they ended up with. And um, they probably made Endymion as a 19 in mind, and then when you see everyone playing it, they realize it's not a 19. And you can't really go and re-rate it to a 20 now, because how anticlimactic would that be? World's First 20 is a song you've already had for two years. You know what I mean? You can't make the first 20 a song we've already had. It has to be a brand new song. Like, here's the first 20, you know? So um, I have a feeling that it's Ace 2 It's Ace 20, 20th anniversary mix. It has the numbers 20 in the damn name. I really think it goes without uh, saying that we will be seeing our first 20 in this mix. And if we don't, then talk about a missed opportunity, right? Um, another thing that really leads me to this is um, the 20th anniversary event we had. There was a new bonus song for each of the event folders. The 2013-2014 um, folder had the Show Me Your Moves. The uh, X to X3 folder had Your Memories, I think. Um, the uh, I'm sorry, no, the, the X to X3 folder had um, Possession 20th Anniversary. The uh, Supernova to Supernova 2 folder had the Chaos Terror Mix. The uh, Max to Extreme folder had Max 360, right? And if you look at the difficulties, you have Chaos Terror, which is a 17. You have Possession, you know, Anniversary, which is an 18. You have Max 360, which is a 19. And then the only folder that didn't get a new song was the first to fifth. And I think it pretty much goes without saying that the anniversary song would be a paranoia. And if we're counting up and Max 360 was the 19, then I think it's fairly safe to say that the final song of the event will be a level 20 paranoia song. Um, that's my theory. And at the end of Ace2O, and the final event happens, and there's a paranoia, and it's a 20, you can go ahead and link this podcast and say, uh, you were right. And if it's not, <laughs> and if it's not, then just we'll forget that this ever happened. <laughs> and then um, once that a 20 actually drops in the following mix, like, you know, DR. Ace 2.0 plus one or whatever they decide to call the next version. Um, I think that they will go back and re-rate Endymion X or X, Endymion single challenge, double challenge, as well as egoism double challenge to twenties, because that is where all three of those songs should be. That would make a lot of sense. And in order to launch a new rating, they should make a new song or some type of new content to really make a big splash because it would be very anticlimactic to then just say oh by the way we have 20s now you already know what they are great like it's not that exciting the the theory about it being a paranoia song makes a lot of sense given the history of the song itself and that it's you know it's been a boss song ever since the very first game i hope that you're right i think it would be 
pretty exciting for there to be like this new paranoia that's like an ultimate boss song. I feel like one really big problem DDR has is I don't know why, but no other Bimani game does this. But they constantly keep on trying to do a reboot. I mean, it's like the this it's like the Spider-Man of music games. Like how many freaking times are you going to reboot the series, you know? DDR when if you've been around like as, you know, back in the day, DDR Max was a reboot, which thinking back now is crazy because the game had only been out like two or three years. But when Max came out, they removed every song from the game. I don't know if you know this. There was not a single revival. There's no paranoia. Um, they've removed every song in the game. Fifth Mix had hundreds of songs. They removed every single song and they made DDR Max. So DDR Max had like 30 or 40 songs total in the entire game. The only folder was the Max folder. And um, they were like, yeah, we're starting over. And then Max 2, they they did revive a few older songs. And then Extreme was when they did like a huge revival and they brought back all the Paranoias. They brought back all the, uh, you know, Trip Machines. And they, they brought the whole game back. And they were like, we're starting over. And we're going to be old school and make the new boss song another Paranoia. So, you know, you had Max, Max, or so you had Max 300, Max Unlimited. And then Legend of Max was the default extra stage but the true boss song at the end of Legend Road was Paranoia Survivor Max Oni, which was like, you know, unforeseen difficulty. And then they had Supernova, um, you know, Fascination Max, et cetera. And then Supernova 2, the like Paranoia Hades, you know. And then you have X is like, we're starting over. It's a new game, um, you know. And then you have X2. And then X3 was like, no, we're old school again. Look at Second Mix. And here's paranoia revolution you know and it's like how many damn times are you going to reboot the series and um just knowing that they're doing the 20th anniversary and that the last um paranoia song was revolution uh kskst is from x3 as well so it's the same mix as revolution um so we're not going to say that that's really newer than revolution um they have not had a paranoia song since then so i think the hey 20th anniversary it's time for a new paranoia and probably time for a 20 as well i'm also going to go ahead and throw out the bpm i'm going to say 125 250 500 is going to be the bpm that's really fast yeah that i'm just going to throw that out there and if if that's right you know i can give you guys my venmo i can <laughs> um Another thing that we often do amongst uh, my friends is when, like, I wrote a step chart, like, 10 years ago, and now you see that pattern in, like, a newer chart and people are freaking out. I call that step infringement. Like, I should be paid royalties. I actually came up with that pattern. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's 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 kind of like my uh, Nostradamus of the, uh, of the Ace 2O stuff. Uh, before we sign off, it's that time of the episode where you get to do all the shameless plugging. So now is the time to plug your social media, all the cool stuff you're working on, anything that you want the public to know about. Now is the time. Well, unfortunately, like I'd mentioned earlier, stuff that I'm working on, I can't really talk about right now. Um, but other things that I'm working on is work-related stuff that I also can't work on, uh, talk about. But just know that in... Um, every way possible, you know, I would like to use my position that I have as a member of the community, as well as my professional position, um, you know, working at one of the largest arcade, you know, Japanese chains here we have 
in the U.S. Um, to continue to kind of cultivate the community we have here and foster um, more more uh, inclusiveness and more competition and and just um, really have some interesting things I'm working on right now that uh, I hope can bear fruit in the future or in the near future. And um, all I can say is, uh, you know, look forward to that. Uh, support your local arcades um, and uh, keep playing uh, games. Also, what, yeah, actually, I do have a, a shameless self-plug, and that's play Pump It Up, okay? Um, you'd be doing yourself a favor by playing Pump It Up. Uh, you know, if we, if we had more time, I could go on for hours about Pump It Up, which I actually wanted to do, but maybe next time. But um, play Pump It Up. Just do it. That's my shameless self-plug. Play Pump It Up. And I'm going to call that a self-plug because I have charts in that game. So uh, play Fallen Angel. Uh, D21 or or D20 or S17. It actually says steps by H. Felker in the bottom corner. So um, play those charts. Uh, the background video is actually animated by an artist friend of mine um, and drawn by her, Vanessa Fardo. Go support her as well. But yeah, play Pump It Up. It's just awesome and it'll make you better at DDR. So that's, that's my shameless self-plug. And Double X is amazing. 2.0 just came out. The new mix for 2020 just came out um, last week. So you've got content that'll last you the next year. Just just do it. It's the right thing to do. Another believer in cross-training. Yes, yes. Um, it, it'll make you better. It, and if you're getting bored of DDR, just, just play the damn game. Just play it. <laughs> <laughs> Where can we find you on social? Uh, you can find me um, on Twitter which I believe is at Hudson Felker, H-U-D-S-O-N-F-E-L-K-E-R. You can find me on Facebook at Hudson Felker, H-U-D-S-O-N-F-E-L-K-E-R. Um, you can find me on Line Messenger uh, at Hudson Felker, H-U-D-S-O-N-F-E-L-K-E-R. I try to keep it simple. Um, I am really, really bad at responding to messages. Um, so please send me a message. Maybe I'll get back to you. <laughs> It's really the only way to get in touch with me. If you like post on my wall or you at me, I won't even see the notification. But if you message me one day, I will just want to clear out my messages. So I will click on your message and then I will get back to you. Hopefully. Um, that's kind of where I'm at. And I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> no, I think it's, it might be even a good thing. It was amazing talking to you. I know we could probably talk for, you know, three episodes worth of content, but this is a great place to start. Definitely love to have you back on at a later time. For sure. Thanks again for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. And we out. See ya. What's up, you beautiful listeners? Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Chris Cast. If you'd like to support the show, make sure to follow or subscribe to the Chris Cast on your favorite major podcast platforms. Like the episode, drop a comment, leave a review, and let me know your thoughts. You can also find me on Twitter at TheChrisMarks, spelled T-H-E-K-R-I-S-M-A-R-Q-Z, and YouTube at YouTube.com slash ChrisMarks, spelled K-R-I-S-M-A-R-Q-Z, of course. And finally, there's a lot of ways that you can spend your time in this life of ours, so thanks again for spending some of that time here. Keep it real, and I'll see you next time.